You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads His Dark Materials, Episode 20, The Amber Spyglass, Chapters 14 through 16. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. And we are here. This is, we're past halfway point, baby. Wow. This is it. We're Holy shit. on our way down. We're descending through the story through chapters 14 through 16, which is, of course, 14, know what it is, 15, the forge, 16, the intention craft. This is a great run of chapters. I'm so excited. They all link together so well. They fit together like metal links, if you will. Hmm. We've got some fun His Dark Materials stuff happening, Eliana. We do have some fun His Dark Materials stuff, even if what's happening in the chapters themselves are, like, more sad than fun. But they're also fun in a way, too. (laughs) But, I mean, this month's Patreon episode for October is going to be His Dark Materials. I'm excited for it. If you're in the Patreon tier at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, stranger and above the $5 tier, uh, you will have access to bonus episodes from us every month. Sometimes they're A Song of Ice and Fire, sometimes they're His Dark Materials, and sometimes they're other miscellaneous works that we want to talk about. And this month we're doing The Spirits and Creatures in His Dark Materials. We're going to talk about some of our favorite passages, some inspiration or possible inspirations for certain entities in mythology and other stories, and of course, the usual lovable banter that you all are there for. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure that'll happen. I mean, I've been learning a lot about banter, and I've been really brushing up on like oh my God. British culture. Love Island. You're talking <laughs> yes, about. So how Love did Island, you know I was going to talk about Love Island? I'm so <laughs> she, she, fucking, <laughs> she fucking read me for filth. She knew where I was going. <laughs> Eliana, you're not on Love Island and you're not I, British. I never want to be on Love Island, but I definitely I've learned I've learned a lot about, you know, the culture that Philip Pullman has grown up in from oh from Love Island. <laughs> yes. Yes, you have. I think you really have a new perspective to bring to our audience here about his dark materials, whether it's for the Patreon episode this month, or if it's for chapters 14 through 16. You know, a new perspective. Eliana has the British perspective on her side now. <laughs> I, I just want to say, if you want to blame someone for this, one of the people who pushed me over the edge was actually one of our historic materials experts, Candid. So, oh, you can blame yes, her. she is watching it. Okay, good, um, yes. Yeah. She, uh, we haven't talked to her in a while. We gotta bring her back on. You know, maybe that's something to eyebrow wiggle think about for the amber spyglass but if you were watching the show uh, which is wrapping up soon in the next couple months for production i think they're finishing up we're getting to the end of filming for series three of his dark materials that will cover the amber spyglass just like we're covering the amber spyglass probably with better production better visuals better audio production you know that's not our fault Oh, we're sorry. They have BAFTAs. <laughs> we have BAFTAs. No, I don't. I don't. We don't. We don't have them. I'm but they do. Me. They have BAFTAs. Yeah. So they watch do have them. BAFTAs. I mean, we're just 
Maybe maybe we'll have Nickelodeon Teen Choice Awards. Oh, MTV Awards. Oh Eliana, um, will you tell us all what the spoiler policy is for these episodes? Because there is a spoiler policy for part of the episodes that I will try to adhere to. Yeah, allegedly. We have a spoiler policy in which we are covering everything in the Historic Materials trilogy up until this point of the Amber Spyglass. So that obviously means everything from book one, Northern Light slash the Golden Compass is fair game. Everything from book two, the Subtle Knife is fair game. And everything, chapters one through 13 of the Amber Spyglass is fair game. But the things that are not will be under our discussion after we cover these chapters, which will include information from the Books of Dust as well as the novellas. I love discussion because... You know, the no spoilers, Eliana kind of plays good cop during no spoilers. Like, okay, now, Chloe, you can't say stuff like that. I kind of bent this time. I was like, this is not really spoilery. <laughs> this, this episode. <laughs> it's uh, Listen, if you get to this point in the book, it's hard, right? Not to yeah. just finish it in two days. I, I just oh, am I putting agree. that out there. If you're at home patient right now, you are a better person than I for that. And you know, we we only have 9 chapters left. I mean, this is this is incredible. 9 chapters in the Amber Spyglass that I have to hold out and not spoil until, you know, the end. Honestly, if you started this book series when we started covering historic materials as a podcast and you haven't finished the book series yet, I'm I'm actually very impressed at your willpower. That's like edging with books. <laughs> Girls Gone Canon, edging with books. I tried to do that briefly for book five of A Song of Ice and Fire for Dance of Dragons and because I didn't know when the sixth book was going to come out. Well, here we are. Okay, Aliana. Okay. <laughs> well, <sighs> last but not least in our Jordan housekeeping is our Discord brunch is happening this weekend. If you're listening to this episode, you're probably getting it. October 29th, 2021. So if you're in the future, hello. If you're in the past, hello. If you're here right now listening, hello. But this weekend, October 30th, 1 to 3 p.m., we're having brunch on Discord with patrons in the Thunder tier, $10 tier and above. It's brunch slash happy hour. We do some some shenanigans, right? Some shenanigans occur. We're gonna... It's Halloween-themed this time for those of us here in the U.S. that celebrate Halloween. I know there's a faction of our European friends on Discord that are like, I don't want to wear a costume, Chloe. And I'm like, bullshit. Uh, costumes bullshit. are encouraged. I'm wearing a costume. I'm wearing a I'm costume. I'm working very hard on my costume. Yeah. I'm excited about your costume. I'm very thrilled. Yeah. I think it will be fun. I think it's it, it's very thrown, not yeah. completely thrown together, but some things are. And I think I'm excited. I'm excited. So... I know you're possibly playing reindeer games that weekend for Halloween, but I'm not. I'm not playing reindeer games. I'm staying home mostly, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. You know, I'm making I'm making some accessories for brunch for brunch happy hour. I'm uh I'm gonna go all out. I think it'll be fun. I think it will be fun. It will, and yeah, I mean, reindeer games is more of I think that's more of Christmas. This isn't like. I'm not like fucking Jack Skellington over here. So <laughs> Hey, we are gonna play a reindeer game though. Uh, mm. a Jackbox game. Ooh, a Jack, play a Jack Skellington box game. box game. Exactly. What is in the box? Oh. Pain. And oh. 
Wow, that's a, that was a lot of references there made just at once. All I at once. All oh I think you're welcome. That was like a quadruple entendre. Enjoy oh it. My God. And no, we are going to play Jackbox games. They're so fun. It's just like silly little Mad Lib kind of games and a bunch of people can play at once and we revolve, you know, it, people play for a round and then we make sure everyone gets in the next round who didn't play in the previous and we play a few rounds, but we're going to do one called Monster Seeking Monster, which is like you're a monster you know, a Halloween-esque monster and you are on a dating app and you have to like hook some dates and you can't let people know what your powers are. So like your goal is not to get revealed. Yeah. But also to get the most dates, like you got to be out there swiping left, right, you know, interesting, all that jazz. So I I think it's going to be really silly. I think it's going to be ridiculous. And I think it's the perfect Halloween shenanigan to be had. Indeed, indeed. I didn't know that that's what you were playing, so I'm excited. Oh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Well, we hope to see you there at Brunch Happy Hour on Discord, but this, of course, brings us to our first chapter of the day, Chapter 14 in the Amber Spyglass, Know What It Is, and we open the chapter with a quote from John Ruskin. Labor without joy is base. Labor without sorrow is base. Sorrow without labor is base. Joy without labor is base. I love that John Ruskin's brought into this because he is an English writer and philosopher and was an art critic of the Victorian era and wrote about geology and architecture, mythos, ornithology, botany, economy, literature. He wrote about everything and his style and literary forms were equally varied. He was just like a really broad cover of writing you know he was the hard times mag no i'm just kidding of our time and he actually was really influential up until the first world war which i do think Hmm. there there's something interesting in some of the the things that pullman brings into the story that are a little world war-esque right Uh, of these people just going at it war of the worlds that's never brought the worlds together till now and in 1869 which This is a fun connection. In 1869, Ruskin became the first Slade professor of fine art at the University of Oxford, where he established his own school, the Ruskin School of Drawing. So John Ruskin was super into the arts and education, and it makes sense that Pullman looks at that quote as kind of influential, right, considering his background. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that also that University of Oxford... I feel like this quote kind of ties into like some of the way things manifest later on in the story in terms of certain rules that are set, but I don't want to, you know, I'm going to just be very vaguely touch that and just tease it. But I will say when you were reading this aloud, I was like, <laughs> I just started cracking up because I was like, what if the quotes were like labor without joy is based? Labor without sorrow is based. I was thinking that too. <laughs> In fact, when I was trying to think about the quote in a deeper context, I was thinking it was a total, like, based meme. I was exactly. like, is this what based means? Yeah. Uh, John Ruskin When was I was trying to time. get deep is what I'm saying. I know. Yeah. Ahead, he was based. You, John Ruskin was based. That's actually all he should have said for this uh, explanation. John Ruskin was based. But absolutely. And, and I think, we're, again, we're going to see this show up a little later in the story. But for now... As you'll all remember, Lyra said, it's okay, Will, I'm gonna stay awake and protect you, but she fell asleep. So Will and Lyra wake in the morning within seconds of each other. She's done 
very little to protect him during their sleep, uh, even while they have the same thought. And then Chevalier Tiales guards them, thankfully someone did, uh, and tells them that the consistorial court has retreated, and Mrs. Coulter's on her way to Azrael with King of Gunway, and he explains that he's been communicating with, with them through the lodestone resonator with his commander, Lord Droke, and he calls them their allies, that once they see the bear repair the knife, they will go to the Galavespians to finish their agenda. Will offers them some food, which both Galavespians accept. They're like, yeah, we also eat those foods, such as dried peaches and stale rye. But they're out of water. Apparently there's no water in this world, which is very unfortunate, so they're going to have to go back to another world to find some. Wow. This is just like Dune, Eliana. <laughs> oh this is God. no, I'm just kidding. Oh my god, I'm sorry. I've seen it twice this week. Leave me alone. Uh Lyra asks the alethiometer if there's danger in the valley, but it says they're safe, so they head back to the window that was already open. The Galavespians examine it and they're astonished by it. It's like a world wonder. Will says he'll have to close it once they head through it. Lyra playfully tries to close it herself, but she can't find the edge of the window, which I think that's very interesting because Lyra is nosy and an only child. And as a nosy only child, like I would also be frustrated. Be like, what do you mean I can't close that? I can do anything I put my mind to. I'm an Aries. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Will explains to Tialis that he can enter endless worlds and he leads them and their dragonflies along the way. Everything's tranquil until they come to the wreckage of an African pilot in a gyropter with three men burnt to cinders contorted across the way. More bodies lie along the path, and the Galavespians are kind of used to this, right? Like, they're a little more normalized through war, but the children are moving through the carnage in absolute shock. I found something really interesting about the Galavespians keep being referred to as the spies, Right, like Philip only contextualizes them as spies, the spies, the spies. And we get very, very, very briefly that little look about their people with Mrs. Coulter soon of, you know, what they've kind of suffered in being oppressed in their society and how they act in their pride and why they're that prideful, which is interesting compared to Coulter, as hmm. we know, because she's also like that, right? She's also oh, yeah. kind of prideful and suppressed. Interesting. And he, the Galavespians they accept human food from them, which I think is interesting for dusty, dusty discussion hmm. reasonings. But them being referred to as spies starts to change. They kind of become more humanized in these chapters as we move along, right? Their arc begins to move. They're not just these soulless spies. And it starts to change after they accept human food, which I think is fun. And they view Lyra and Will I don't know, uh, Lyra and Will are always described as children for us that are reading the books, but the Galavespians and the Magisterium and other people view Lyra and Will as these prophesied kind of villains almost, right? Like, they're the ones disrupting the order of things that are happening, whereas we just see them as kids, faded children. But mm -hmm. the spies kind of even see them as killers, right? Like, they are part of this because of their delay, because of them dragging their feet, and because of what they're doing in the face of prophecy, they're they're seen as killers almost to the Galavespians, and so there's almost this reckoning between them where they have to kind of like come to the same common ground, which they do in the next few chapters, I think. Uh, and to be fair, like the Galavespians have been hunted their entire lives by humans, so like why would Will and Lyra be that much different? They they don't know, they don't know. I get it. 
I think there's also kind of a connection with Yorick, right? Because Yorick in the following chapters sees himself as becoming more human. And then you even get kind of in the face of these faded, vilified, prophesied children, this moment where Will and Lyra are looking at the dead and they're shooked, right? Like they are straight up shooken, straight up shaked. They are just like shaken in their boots because death sucks and they weren't really mm-hmm. ready to see all these people that died kind of for quote unquote them, right? For their escape. And they fight for Azrael's side, which I might not like Azrael, but what he stands for and what these people that are following him are fighting for, it is the better cause, right? Than the authority. Like we should very much think that's a better option. Uh, and there's just so much love and loss and life and growth here for Lyra and Will. And they head up to the top of the valley to finally get some water. And Lyra starts to think about Ama, someone we just left behind. And we've talked about how we won't see her again in the story, likely. Uh, Lyra had asked the alethiometer the night before what happened to her. And Ama's okay, but she thinks Lyra and Will are devils and she fears them. So... Their reaction, you know, to these death of these soldiers and them being vilified in the face of all these different factions and Amma's fear of them is so sad, right? Because they are lonely children, as we will talk about today more. Lyra's a lonely child. Will is a lonely child. They're very alone. And Amma helped them so greatly, but also they're kind of like, you know, Satanists to Amma right now. She's like, what the fuck? It is really very, very sad for Lyra and Will that they're starting to see, right, all these people who are dying on behalf of them. And it, it's really showing, I think, what Tiales and Salmachia told them in the previous chapter. They're like, you need to start taking this shit more seriously. And I kind of really love what you're saying about how the people who are seen as their enemy, right, like the the humans, right, even though I guess the Galavespians are sort of human themselves based on other classifications probably like they're considered conscious beings as a king of gunway will say but i mean there's a re- interesting contradiction in there that their enemy is also going to be is is where the you know the promised ones are coming from kind of like how the knife sounds very much like a contradiction as we're gonna find out but also i think it's just so i i, I do love that bit of humor though where lyra's like talking about what happened to Ama, and I'm so glad that we find out that she's okay and we get that sort of closure, but she's like, yeah, she thinks we're devils now. (laughs) And I feel like the way that's delivered adds a little levity to everything that's going on. But I will say that I don't think that Ama is exactly wrong in terms of Will and Lyra being devils, because that is kind of the point, right? That is the point of of the the books right that they are part of the side of the rebel angels in a way and i mean they're not wrong to think that lyra and will are killers that's what lyra knows about will and she's like that's why i trust him he's a killer gotta be a killer right have to be a killer that's that's a good thing here and regarding the Galavespians being spies, I do think it's interesting, as you were saying, that they keep being called the spies, and it feels like the children distrust them for that, and also that it's so framed so negatively about them being spies, but not the other parts of it, in terms of how spies end up being framed in the secret commonwealth. And I'll just leave it at that, because we do have a discussion, but I'm just like, interesting. 
There's actually something even closer to that here as we get to chapter 16 with Coulter, right? The way Ogunway regards Coulter, he says, the questions that you're asking makes you seem like you're a spy. Like, you know that, right? Like, you're sounding very <laughs> awfully spy-like right now. So the distrust of spies is definitely rooted in these chapters. And that's, it feels very significant. Very significant. People of the press. Absolutely. Yeah, that is a big discussion in these few chapters. A lot of things are repeated throughout these chapters, but... Yeah, they have some really bold themes. Yeah, they really do. It's well, it's well thread throughout these. And continuing on, they, they continue on to go find Yorick! Oh, a wonderful reunion when it happens, but for now, Lyra is weak, she's exhausted, and refuses to say anything about how she's feeling because she wants to keep pace with Will until he eventually goes for a bathroom break. And then she trembles and whimpers, and Lady Salmaki says, You need to rest. There is no disgrace in being weary. And Lyra argues that she can't let Will down. She can't let him think that she's weak or that she's holding him back. But Lady Salmaki calls that impertinence. And that, that this is the last thing Will would think about her. And then she reiterates that Lyra needs to rest. And Lyra feels mutinous and then remembers like Lady Salmaki's poison and then decides not to say anything back. And I... I guess this is this is one of those moments, right, that kind of ties back to the header quote for this chapter in terms of the work and needing to, like, rest and the sorrow and the joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, all of life's flavors and the in-between. Yeah, it's based. And that's part of this, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's based. But it, it is, like, Lyra is so conflicted, mm. right? And she straight up is so stressed and exhausted that she just kind of bursts and says this to Salmachia and... Something that I really love, again, between this chapter with Coulter later, is how this manipulation and the manipulations we see Coulter do with Asriel, uh, and Asriel do with Coulter. It's going to be a very fun game of cat and mouse that we'll talk about, or cat and monkey. And here, though, Salmachia, I mean, later we see that she's teased it out of Lyra. Like, she knew just from this. She's like, oh, you love him. Oh, okay. Interesting. Gonna write that one down. That girl loves him. Uh, which is also so funny because later Coulter's like, I don't know what Lyra's thinking. And Salmaki is able to figure it out in 10 seconds that Lyra's weaknesses will. Yeah, she is. But they still make- Girl has it bad. They still make some of the wrong assumptions. They're in this chapter. They're like, yeah, she's going to yeah. do whatever Will says. And I'm like, you got that the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Chevalier Tialis opens the lodestone resonator and Lyra watches him. And I have to bring this out because it's just so beautiful. The instrument looked like a short length of pencil made of a dull gray-black stone resting on a stand of wood. And the Chevalier swept a tiny bow like a violinist across the end while he pressed his fingers at various points along the surface. The places weren't marked, so he seemed to be touching it at random. But from the intensity of his expression and the certain fluency of his movements, Lyra knew it was as skillful and demanding a process as her own reading of the alethiometer. I love the usage and repetition of the word resonance here, right? In terms of like the lodestone resonator and then how this is very, it calls it out, right? That it is reminiscent of a violin or a stringed instrument. And it's such a great creative choice, especially because of like the idea that it looks like random points, but there's definitely a method to it that Tiales knows, and it, it feels very parallel to Will, right? Using the resonance of the different worlds 
to figure out which world it is, and then to also sort of feel at at the edges to close the windows. Oh yes, it's that slight precision. Yeah, right. It, they it's use the word resonance. Precision. Yeah, for for each world. So I was like, oh, interesting. How fun. How cute. And you know, I love emotional resonance. <laughs> emotional. We haven't used that Thematic, term. Thematic. We haven't said that in a long time. Wow, throwbacks. Well, I'm bringing it back here. Wow. But I do I do find like the connection to mm-hmm. and the intentional tools we're going to talk about, the the crafted tools throughout these three chapters. Yeah. Uh but but uh, there's something so resonant, literally oh. resonant about it and how it hits with also with like possibly communicating through worlds. Like this is like a tin can telephone game but to the extreme. Mm-hmm. Right? I think it's really well done, and it's such a fun cut. Co- so much in his Dark Materials is a little steampunky, right? Yeah, like, just yeah, a yeah. little bit of cogs and shit. And that's why the Golden Compass movie hit some of those cool looks, just because it had steampunk stuff, but they didn't quite deliver on the thematic. And also, Chris got fucked anyways, but it, was it, it wasn't his fault, you it know? It was too early. It was too early. Like that was the it really movies have changed a lot. I mean, and the way that culture regards things like that, that era, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the studio controlled so much of it, but yeah. the design works so well because of some of these concepts, like yeah. this lodestone resonator. It's just this little like mini micro medieval thing, and and Lyra asks a liar, how it maybe. works because she's interested. A liar! Oh my god! He looks like uh, sidebar. Anyways. In Hades Town, Orpheus and Eurydice, when they meet, he's like singing to her, and Aww. she's like, "Orpheus, interesting. So, what are you going to tell me? Like that other dudes couldn't?" And he's like playing his lyre, and he's like, "I'm a player," and she's like, "Oh, a player and a liar. Nice, you know." Uh-huh. Uh, and that's how I feel about Will and Lyra, because oh, you know, it's good that uh, Lyra gets a little eyeball of this lodestone resonator, right? Because she too appreciates these finer details like you and I do. And she asks how it works. He says, scientists, whatever you call them in whatever world you are, know something called quantum entanglement, meaning two particles can exist that only have properties in common, so that whatever happens to one happens to the other at the same moment, no matter how far apart they are. This is some foreshadowing. You know, if you're not there yet, I'm not telling you, but there's some foreshadowing coming soon that this could have to deal with, Mm. right? Like common property items, quantum entanglement, but it's also foreshadowing for something much bigger that I'm also not going to talk about. Hmm. That said, I do... I do want to talk about quantum entanglement because I did a lot of reading on quantum entanglement. I wonder what it could all mean. I think it's a metaphor, Eliana. But quantum entanglement is a phenomenon that happens when particles are interacting, generating, sharing proximity with one another in a way that the state of each particle of the group cannot be described independently of the state of the others, including when particles get separated by a large distance. The topic of quantum entanglement is the disparity between classical and quantum physics. It's a primary feature of mechanics lacking in classical mechanics, and there have been suggestions to look at the concept of time, for example, as a phenomenon that's a side effect of quantum entanglement. 
So it's like really relativity, right? Yeah. Like with that, uh, if we want to go like, and that's like time only exists because someone else is there to look at you and say, yes, I agree. Time exists. Hmm. And that's your property you share. Hmm. It's all a metaphor is all I'm saying. I think it's a metaphor for something. It is a metaphor for something, but hmm. we aren't doing spoilers, even though we've definitely kind of been treading the line on it. Spoiler policy. <laughs> well, I will say a fun fact adamant the legendary rock which i think we've discussed before uh, and of which is the material for the adamant tower that we're going to come back to in like the last chapter of this episode was associated with lodestones and then also in regards to quantum yes, entanglement it's i want the obsidian of the hdn world it is <laughs> it is it actually is but yeah so i it has always kind of been associated with that so that's kind of funny but i would like to once more in regards to quantum entanglement recommend the disney channel original film genius starring emmy russum and it's also kind of about hockey so maybe it's a great seasonal film to throw on right now and it has a very great, I think, demonstration of quantum entanglement if you would like to watch the Disney Channel original film, Genius. I just have to say, is this just because like you're being topical about hockey season? Is it hockey? I don't know. Is it, is it, is it hockey? hockey season? <laughs> well, that's why I'm like, did you know? It starts in early October, I guess, and it goes till April, but... Did you know that, or were you just spitballing? Because I'm like, I just associate winter. Eliana the Oracle with hockey. You know, I'm like, these. But that was my question. That you're like, it's the season. What fucking season is it, Eliana? What do you celebrate right now? Hockey? What the fuck? I mean, this is a. I just associate hockey with the cold weather, and I was like, that seems cozy. Maybe. God, I have never seen this film. By the way, I'm sorry. Maybe we'll have to watch it. Maybe we'll have to watch it. It's got, that's actually literally when I, how I first learned about, I think, this concept at like nine years old. <laughs> so. Wow. So maybe it's a Discord film. Maybe. Tiali's explains a little bit more about, you know, quantum entanglement in the Lodestone Resonator, though. Uh, and says that when a person on each side reproduces the exact sound, they can communicate. And I'm also like, you described a cell phone. And he puts his lodestone resonator away, and Salmachia speaks quietly to him where Lyra can't hear. Pan, though, becomes an owl and strains to hear, and then Will comes back and they move on. They begin to move to snowy territory in rocky valleys, and Will can tell Lyra has no energy left. He asks to see her feet and rubs blood moss ointment onto her blisters while the Galavespians update them, and Lord Roke is sending a gyropter to bring them away as soon as they find Yorick, and Will... Rubbing ointment and giving Lyra a foot massage, which is so sweet of him. Reminds me a little of Mary Magdalene washing and anointing Jesus' mm-hmm. feet. And I mean, as we know, both of them are kind of promised ones, Will and Lyra. So that's interesting. But also, I, I just think it's a really wonderful scene where Ly- where Will is showing care towards Lyra because she's been pushing herself so hard because she doesn't want to be a burden and by slowing down here and caring for her he's demonstrating through his actions that Lyra doesn't need to push herself so hard and he's creating this like safe trusting dynamic between them I love what you said about Mary Magdalene because I've been thinking a lot throughout this chapter of of Lyra's you know Jesus energy (laughs) going on like she's very, she's got the disciples, right? Yorick, mm. she's got Will. Oh um, yeah. Even the Galavespians are fucking following her. You know the the two 
Galavaspians are with her, yeah. even though they don't want to be. They're like, yeah, she's the real fucking deal. Uh, and there is something about like that vulnerability that Will, she just has that argument with Salmachia, you know, like, well, Will would this. No, Will would never do this. And now here he is proving Salmachia's point that Will doesn't give a shit about that. Will yeah. cares about your well-being. And it's also important to like her self-worth. Like it's also people can care about you without drugging you in a cave, for example. Yeah. Right. That's the other thing. Like Will's showing you healthy love, which is really great. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because she hasn't had very much of that in terms of uh, some of the people closer. She has at least through like people like Lee and Yorick and Serafina. But anyway, Lyra puts her shoes back on and then yeah. Off they go again, night looming in the sky, and they finally reach Yorick. Yorick and Lyra share an embrace, a bear hug, if you will. And it's the best. And Lyra forgets her weariness in that moment. She's so happy, and it gets a little less happy after when she asks Yorick for an update about his kingdom, if Mr. Scoresby is safe. She's riding proudly on his back. Will doesn't listen while they talk. Only hears a little bit of the crosstalk, and unfortunately during this time, Yorick breaks the news about Mr. Scoresby's death, and then Lyra cries out in dismay, and then Will realizes, oh, I actually might know some of this, and had heard it from the Gangels while Lyra is weeping freely, and Yorick swears to avenge him, and Will's like, I don't really know how to comfort people here, because uh, Lee Scoresby kind of died to save my dad, and like... They actually knew and loved Lee Scoresby and Will, like, didn't. And he's like, I feel awkward. What a... This is a complex emotion yeah. to have. Like, and I think a lot of people have had that kind of emotion, especially as an adult coming to terms with someone's life and memory you don't know, but because of someone's soul who might be quantumly entangled with your own on your path, you are, you know, having to help and, and be involved even though you feel awkward and like you you are intruding on something it's an intrusion i had a really good friend pass away that like it was weird because there was a whole other life that i wasn't a part of but i mm-hmm. i knew them you know and it's that kind of intrusion of like yeah but will it's not even a good friend of his right the the line is they had loved him and known him and will had not and it's empty and lonely and he feels partially responsible, I think, because not just for that, you know, like he's feeling responsible throughout this whole chapter for everything. He feels so guilty about his mom and Lyra and the Gangels and Lee, uh, his dad. He's got a lot on his shoulders on his plate right now, and he's trying to carry it all, just like Lyra is too, right? And it's so, they're, they're not telling each other things because they can't. As we see when they take the time to, they do take time to have asides and be vulnerable with each other and say, this is how I'm actually feeling now that the spies aren't here. And uh, just Will's loyalty to Lyra and, and I mean, her loyalty to him in some aspects too, like it really shines through here. Yeah. And in terms of them not opening up yet, I mean, that's a learned thing, right? It's it's not something you just come into the world knowing, especially since both of them have been, as you pointed out earlier, they've been lonely children for a long time and they're only now like but especially they can't right now i mean the spies that's also true they can't i mean but they have opened up like i mean they opened up throughout all the subtle knife to each other like that's not the problem the problem here is like they both know 
they can't say what they want to say and need to say. Yeah. And that's also something that comes off really apparently, like, that they're like, really need to fucking talk to Lyra, really need to fucking talk to Will, really fucking can't, because these spies are here. Yeah. The spies are ruining They only trust the each mood. other. The spies are ruining the mood. The honeymoon? <laughs> yeah, the honeymoon. <sighs> oh my god. Well, Will desperately wants to talk to her, but he doesn't know where the spies are in the cave, so he's kind of just sitting exhausted in there. Yorick is roasting lamb for them. He likes his raw. And he tells Lyra his people can't live in these mountains. He starts to ask them what their plan is, and Will begins to address the king. He starts to lead with his broken knife, but then he realizes the spies are listening in on them from a corner. They appear, they show their faces, and Will demands they show the king respect, not having asked permission to enter his cave. Lyra, of course, is enamored with this. She's like, yes, 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 that's Will, Will rocks. But Chevalier Tialis is displeased with this display. Yeah, I think most spies don't like having their cover blown. It's kind of like, oh, I did I do a bad job? But the reason Will's able to do it, right, even though he can't see them and he's able to point directly at the wall that they're hiding behind is because he has, I mean, that very supernatural intuition and ability to sense things, right? It's it's part of how he's able to find and close the world. And it's, it's a gift. I hope his senses stay sharp as well. Ooh. I truly Ooh. do. I truly do. Well, Chevalier then accuses them of being dishonest with them for bringing them to this cave and without telling them that the knife was broken. And Will rises up telling him that, you know what, it was necessary for us to deceive you uh, and you're just going to have to put up with it because he explains like that, you know, they're Asriel's spies to Yorick and says that, well, if you were both truly on our side, you wouldn't hide an eavesdrop on them. Salmachia is also pissed about this, and Chevalier, like, acknowledges Will's logic of, like, we had to lie to you, or else you would have made us do this thing. And then Tiali's, like, apologizes, though shoots cold, resentful looks at Will and Lyra. Lady Salmachia just ignores the children completely and asks for forgiveness to Yorick and admits that they failed to pay him proper respects as they've been among their enemies for so long. And I'm just kind of like, I understand like why Will would deceive them, but I'm not sure I completely understand his logic as to why he was right. And, or like how he is more right than Chevalier Tiali's in this. I'm like, they were all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were all being very rather bratty, mm-hmm. right? Like all four of them were being brats, all four of them. Yeah. And, I don't know. I do feel maybe Pullman's really pushing this tension, right? To to put that kind of tension between those dynamics between them. I don't know that they needed to necessarily be like this, but that said, they are rigid about getting back to Asriel. Yeah. Who's payrolling them? You know, yeah. I mean, like, they, they are on his dime, and it is hard to explain, right, from all sides. Like, they can't go back to Asriel and be like, well, it turns out your daughter is a little shithead, you know? He kind of knows. They, he already knows, yeah. And they haven't been with Will and Lyra, so they don't know them before now. They don't, they've heard some of these things that they've seen and done, but they're kind of on blind faith themselves. Mm-hmm. But all of their behavior is just a little petty, right? A little forced. And maybe I just haven't met many Galavespians or many Will Lyras, but a little forced. Yeah. Like, especially in terms of who ends up being right. And I'm just like, I don't know about all yeah. this, but. You're saying, yeah, all four of them are being bratty, but you know who's not being bratty? 
and it's probably just like, I don't know what the fuck is happening here. Yorick. Yorick is there, being great, accepts their apologies, invites them to eat by the fire, and then lets Will continue asking him to mend the knife. Yorick examines the knife, explaining, yes, I can fix it. And Lyra realizes, uh, yes, he can fix it doesn't mean yes, he will do it. And kind of like follows up. And Yorick explains he doesn't trust that knife, says it's a deadly weapon with an unlimited harm factor. It says, you know what, Will's intentions with this knife might be good, but the knife has intentions too, and a tool's intentions are what it does. And we've got this great quote from Yorick of, But sometimes a tool may have other uses you don't know. Sometimes in doing what you intend, you also do what the knife intends without knowing. Rawr! Rawr! Oh my god. Oh my god. Rawr! I'm very happy that you got to bring it back. Thank you. you know, it was about time. It's it was about time. It was about time. <laughs> what is it, Lord Tywin Lannister from the, the show book based upon etc. Game of Thrones? Uh there's a tool for every task and a task for every tool. I'm just kidding, that's literally unrelated, but I love this little passage because I don't know the fact that what you do has meaning, right? That's what this chapter is all about. Mm. Lyra cares so much about bringing peace to Roger or trying to do so. Will cares so much uh, about doing this so that he can go back to his mom and take care of her. Yeah. Right. Like he, he's like, I have a goal to go home and, and give her the care that she deserves. What you do has meaning. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about prophecy here and there today, but uh, in the face of the prophecy about them, this is them fighting to have their own arc and their own story. Absolutely. That's such a great point. It, it is what this chapter is really emphasizing about meeting and being intentional about mm-hmm. what you mean to do. So, And you know I love that shit. I love <laughs> intentional art. It's like the thing I love. Like when you know someone put a scene next to another scene in a movie because of like the mood or the tone like they were like well if i put this this pair it's how we cover a song of ice and fire you know like we put povs that we think mean things together near each other and see what fucking cooks up in the pan and i love intentional art i love just things meaning shit so this is (laughs) this is a chapter i like it's a chapter i like and pullman does a great job of being very intentional about these chapters about the intentional chapters, yes. 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 Uh, well, Yorick then asks Will if he can see the knife's sharpest edge in terms of knowing what the knife does, and Will admits, yeah, I guess I can't see it because it's so infinitesimally small. And Yorick then asks, how can you know everything it does? And I, I just am fascinated by some of the language about Will and the knife in these sequences. You know, like, especially when it comes to later on in the forging scenes, it feels a little bit like Will's relationship with the knife is almost like a demon, right? Being one with the knife and being able to feel everything it feels. And also the way that Will's relationship to the knife is likened to the bears in their armor, but yet how Will doesn't really know everything that the knife wants or is doing. So it, it, it's a little interesting. And Will, though, emphasizes that he has to use the knife If he does nothing, he'd be even worse, and he'd be guilty for doing nothing. And Lyra argues that the people in Bolvanger were wicked, and Yorick knows that, 
and that if they don't try, these people just can keep going forever. How great is that connection, right? Connecting the knife to Bullvanger. And, and I mean, the subtle knife, even like that book, we learned so much of this knife and its effects and what the people who once had control of it could do and wanted to do with it. Connecting it to Bullvanger, where the doctors stood by and did nothing while children were tortured. Will feels like if he doesn't try to use the knife and try to get it back and try to have it on their side, he's doing nothing, which is worse. It's worse than doing something and failing. Mm -hmm. This reminds me so much of this passage from Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Mm -hmm. I think there's so much here of Will and Lyra's path being laid out in front of them as fated children and them doing what little they can to attain agency in those prophecies, right? Like the, those little bits of just like taking these things for yourself, like I'm going to do this the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to kill whatever, do whatever, eat the fucking apple, be Eve. And it's all about faith, like having faith in the tool's intentions, even if you can't know them, like there's no way... Will can know what the knife means without Lyra looking it up on the alethiometer and getting a half-baked answer, as we're going to see. It makes you wonder, is the path faded because they're on it, or are they faded because of the path they're on? Mm -hmm. You know? And it makes you wonder. It's a big question throughout the book. Who came first, the chicken or the egg? Chicken or the egg? <sighs> well, to come back to another tool that also has intentions, I would say the alethiometer, Lyra consults it. She's like, what is up with the knife's intentions? And Will says nothing. He's thinking about what the broken knife means to him, which a lot of things, right? The, the things you could already guess. Never going home, never seeing his mom again, abandoning her like his father did. He thinks that he must use it to return to her or never forgive himself. Yorick finally agrees to fix the knife, on one condition, because while his people have no gods or demons, they have language and tools. If Lyra reads the alethiometer and gives the final decision, he'll mend it. Lyra reads the alethiometer and it's wildly confused. It calls for balance. It says the knife could be bad or good, depending on the bearer, Will's, wishes. And then it said, repair it. Yorick nods. Lyra offers fuel for his fire. He directs them to a resinous, brushy area. But Will knows Lyra wants to talk, away from the spies. So once they're away in these resinous bushes, he asks what else the alethiometer really said. Lyra says she didn't really understand all of it, but she thinks it said, the knife would be the death of dust, but the only way to keep dust alive. The alethiometer also warned them that if you went to the world of the dead, you might never come back. You might never survive, which quite frankly, is always a risk for everyone when they go to the world of the dead. So, did they not think that was a risk? I wonder that. Anyways. It's in the name, right? I know, right? I'm like, I feel like that was an implied risk, <laughs> going to the world of the dead. Anyway. She doesn't understand, though, as she said earlier, the rest of the alethiometer's message, probably because it spoke to her in fucking weird-ass shit and she says all she saw was blankness and emptiness but she thinks it meant that even if it's dangerous they should still try to rescue roger 
She says that she's smarter than she was when she first tried to free him at Bullvanger, but the place in her subconscious that she visited was even worse than Bullvanger, and that's what she's truly afraid of. Will takes a deep breath and tells her his fears, never seeing his mother again. Out of nowhere, he remembers being young and ill before her troubles first began, and her singing nursery rhymes to him and telling him stories, and how he had felt safe. He couldn't abandon her now. And as if she could hear his thoughts, Lyra comforts him, saying, that would be an awful thing. You know, right on that same track of what you were saying earlier about kind of that intimacy they've developed, I love how patient and kind they are Mm -hmm. with one another. Like, uh, kids, right? Kids are assholes. And I was an asshole. I was a kid once. (laughs) And kids love one-upping one another, right? And, And... these two kids, as we said, lonely, only children, and they're very different from maybe the normal, normal kid. You know, your baseline, run-of-the-mill, elementary school, little snot-nosed kid. They're different than those. But they're very kind and patient. They don't try to one-up each other's grief ever. They One person isn't more important. Like, they are two parts of a whole in the way they operate on this mission, and mm-hmm. I, I think their relationship is really special and really highlighted in that. And they're open to the things they share. Like Lyra goes on to talk about her own mother saying, I grew up alone. I don't remember being held. I don't remember being cuddled. I, I don't even remember Mrs. Lonsdale holding me, she says. Mrs. Lonsdale only taught me about manners and keeping clean. Interesting. We're going to talk about that in the discussion. Talk about ungrateful but, kids. Fucking ungrateful, snot-nosed, motherfucker. Lyra remarks, though, in the cave, Lyra thought Coulter had really loved her, truly, that she thought Lyra was sick or diseased, and she was nursing her back to health. She never stopped looking after her, and Lyra even remembers her holding her in her arms maybe once or twice. That's what I'd do in her place if I had a child, she says. Oh, Lyra. Oh, sweet. (sighs) <sighs> Sears into camera. It's very sad. <laughs> it's so sad. Yeah. It, it's like, it's really sad because part of it is like, Lyra knows how horrible her mom is, but she also like sees some of the humanity and her mom mm-hmm. is, as we talk about people that are gaining humanity in these chapters, Coulter is finally kind of growing a spine back yeah. after removing it for so many years surgically and giving it to the faith. Yeah. Absolutely, she is. And it it is really sad. And I mean, the truth is somewhere in between, right? The truth of of what happened there, right? It's somewhere in between. Like, yeah, Mrs. Coulter did this terrible thing because Will, like, realizes, oh, Lyra doesn't understand her mom is, like, actually poisoning her. But, like, as we see in, in Mrs. Coulter's, like, monologue later on, I mean, she does love her. And he's like, should I tell Lyra and betray that memory? And then he decides that he shouldn't. It's a lot like in Frozen when, uh, oh my you God. know, Kristoff is about to be like, I'm going to tell him regarding Spring to Olaf. And Anna's like, don't you dare. And they find the resinous bushes. They gather armfuls of the bush and they agreed that they won't be saying anything to those little spies. And I, I just, you know, in reflection in this scene... And Will deciding not to tell Lyra because he sees it as this, like, objectively bad thing. I don't think he truly understands yet that there very much is another kind of symmetry to both 
Lyra and his relationships with their mothers, and especially in terms of the way that they misunderstand their mothers, because, yeah, Will knows the truth about Lyra's slumber and isn't going to reveal to her the sinister nature behind why she was asleep, you know, again, which is like that, oh yeah, it was your own mother who's keeping you back, haha, haha. And so he thinks that he's like allowing Lyra to keep this like really idyllic, but not really true vision of her mother while. You know, Will's actually very much doing the same when it comes to his own mother. Because, yeah, he remembers his mother caring for him and holding him once upon a time in his own illness. And from that feels this fierce need to protect his mother for the rest of his life or for hers. But I think he fails to understand that, like, this isn't actually a very good situation either, right? What his mother has put upon him isn't good like, yeah, Elaine might be a good person and definitely does not kill children or actively harm them for, like, fucking science or self, you know, for her career. But she has put her son in a position where he's been forced to take on the care for his mother and that the roles of parenthood have been reversed. And that's really, really been harmful to him, as we see. Uh, It's hard because both of them are kind of reckoning with, like, parents not perfect Mm -hmm. and obviously elaine did the best to her abilities as being a single mother let alone uh having health issues on top of that that's a lot to cope with like i don't have a child and i don't know if i could have one because like of my health you know like i don't know about my health giving them health issues and then also being awake enough to somehow like care for a child's needs and raise a human and like make them into like this is some next level shit Mm -hmm. you know so like elaine was doing the best she could but it is like will and lyra grew up very lonely children for a reason yeah it is and i I because of that absenteeism going on for both yeah in different ways and i I don't think will Will sees his actions and the way he feels towards his mother as this is a positive thing to feel and not realizing it's really hurtful. And I think the knife snapping is meant to be sort of a a metaphor for like, this is this is actually also painful for you, you know, Will. And he's, he hasn't reckoned with that yet. Yeah. Well, speaking of the knife breaking, let's let's get to its mending in The Forge, chapter 15. We open with the line, As I was walking among the fires of hell, delighted with the enjoyments of genius. From William Blake, and I will say that the word genius is capitalized in this quote, so William Blake is also recommending the 1999 Disney Channel original movie, Genius. Oh my fucking god, I cannot deal with you. (sighs) Meanwhile, the Galavaspians are speaking about the very knife that we're speaking about. Selmachia complains, Will is too alert, but the girl is trusting and loves easily. Tialis reminds her, Will has the knife, and he's going to break them into another world and run away from us as soon as it's fixed. Yeah, so speaking of tools and intentions, all of these assumptions about Will and Lyra are going to blow up in the Galavespian's face later on. Because they, like Asriel, are kind of failing to understand that sometimes your pawns can have intentions of their own. Something we discuss in another book series. But anyways, it's the same lesson that Lyra and Will are learning now about their own tools. Salmachia 
reluctantly agrees, watching Yorick improvise a workshop to fix the knife with. And the mighty workers in Azrael's factories would have probably laughed at the setup, but that's dumb of them, alright? Because Yorick's a fucking master. And the anvil contains some of Yorick's own armor. Wow, beautiful. But the bear was certain in his movements. They realize this and muffle their scorn. Will and Lyra support Yorick by keeping branches in the fire at certain angles and the heat in the cave becomes intense. They gather more fuel for the operation and then find some stones that Yorick shows them next. And he's like, we have to do the stones like this because they're going to give off a gas to keep air from the hot metal of the blade. I have no idea if any of this shit is true or not, but I'm like, yes. And... The branches that they gathered when they were, like, having their secret talk are described as being, you know, resinous, full of resin, right? Um, which is kind of fun, because resin is going to come back and play a big part in this book. It is fun. I love that. And I also love the anvil, having some of Yorick's armor, yes. because his armor is his soul, Ugh. as we learn. It's what he has. He put himself in there as part of protection. I mean, I think that's why he gets so upset, right? Yeah. I mean, he's putting himself in in it yeah, to forge this. He's part of it. It's amazing. And he and gets so burned. He does. Literally. Literally, literally his paws. His poor paws. Poor babby dad. Daddy boy. Um, Will ends up being the fire manager. He performs his duties with excision. Yorick warns him the knife might be a little shorter and the surface will be changed color-wise and the handle will be charred, but it'll work. I love this chapter following the quantum entanglement of Will and Lyra, right? That knife being welded in this chapter is symbolizing the entire journey they're going through. They're the knife, right? Like, maybe the friends we made all along were Issa Hedder. And they're trying to parse and fix their traumas together as we leave the last chapter, right? That that end of the chapter, like you said, where they're like, oh, my mom's great, lol. Uh, they're processing some of this, and now Lyra wants to go free Roger with the power of friendship and, and maybe make further traumas or fix further traumas or whatever. The power of further traumas are compelling them through all of this. Yeah, exactly. It could be further trauma. I mean, they could die, which, again, I feel like that was always a pretty self-evident risk. <laughs> yeah. It could happen. It could still happen. We have nine chapters left. Yeah. I just always felt like that was a clear risk when you go to the world of the dead. I watched the Disney Hercules movie, and I saw what happened when he swam through that river of souls. So, Oh, oh, it happened. Pan changes into a crow to help with the forge and fanning the flames. Adorable. And Lyra wafts the stone gas over the fire. The metal of the knife glows red, yellow, and then white. Then Yorick places it on the anvil, singeing his claws a little, but working with extraordinary <laughs> speed to hammer the blade into one. It's honestly amazing. Will watches, his every sense trembling, knowing his future depends on his blade, and Yorick then yells above the noise for Will to hold it still in your mind, you have to forge it too. This is your task as much as mine. And so Will keeps the fire lit and Lyra gets new stones for Yorick, and Will struggles, but holds out until the end of the forging. Before the last piece is heated, Yorick makes meaningful eye contact with Will, and while Will can't really read what's on his mind, because he's like, they're just black bear eyes, he feels it. They're all equal to this task, and even though it's hard, Will must brace himself for the final blow. 
The blade cools and Will readies himself to wield his knife again. But Yorick says, not quite yet, we have to go talk outside. He directs Lyra to guard the knife from the spies and also guard the fire. Don't let it die. They have one final task. Outside, Yorick tells Will, they shouldn't have done this. They shouldn't have fixed this knife. He's full of doubt and he says, that's a human thing, not a bear thing. Refy, I'm becoming human. Something's wrong. Something's bad. And I've made it worse. I don't know how many more of these I'm going to get, okay? <laughs> I'm going to ham it Will up. Will argues the first panzer born to make armor would have been bad in that same sense, right? He's like, well, logically, that means the first bear that made his own armor is bad. So how could all of you be bad? Oh, is that a metaphor? How could everyone else be bad after original sin? Uh, and Yorick is silent, choosing to roll in a snowbank just for a hot second. Gotta love that. Stands up, he shakes off the snow, and then he answers Will, yes, maybe that was evil too. Oh, I get it. The knife is original sin. Hmm. Also, the knife's original sin. Yorick building armor. Armor building is original sin. Uh... Yorick becoming human. That's his worst fear right now. And that is ridiculously interesting because we see how Yofer Brackinson is torn apart in the opposite manner, right? He becomes corrupted by the Magisterium and their promise of riches and resources to use how he pleases. And his kingdom literally turns to filth and shit. And Yorick is picking up these pieces currently, trying to return his people to some sort of semblance of normalcy, something resembling their culture without this human interference, right, of what they've had happen to them. And here comes his human best friend, Lyra, the other side, not the Magisterium, the opposite of that, not like other humans, Lyra Silvertongue. And his paw is kind of forced, right, likely because of Lyra. Yeah. I love, I love what you said. I didn't even realize, like, yes, absolutely, the knife is bare original sin. And, and I mean, yeah, obviously the armor was, like, part one of that. But the weapon, intention, intention is part of it. Like, that's such a big part, I think, of what Pullman is saying is key to being human. And this idea of doubt, right? Like, when, isn't, isn't the idea, like, when Adam and Eve, like bit into the apple, then they felt shame for the first time. And that's what York is feeling here, maybe, a bit of shame. Mm -hmm. And Lyra plays both the serpent and Eve and is like, offers that knowledge, right? She gives the knowledge from the alethiometer that says, yeah, we should repair the knife. And and so York does it. He takes the bite and, and is part of everything that's going to come after in that way. So, and I don't, like you said, is it a bad thing? Is it not? I don't know. Like, Yorick has kind of already been maybe on this path already, right? Like, when we first see him, he's doing some weird human-y shit, too, by, like, doubting himself and giving into, like, alcoholism, right? And because his armor was stolen, so. Yeah. Yeah, he's kind of, I mean, it's interesting because humans are supposed to be full of life right and humans are supposed to be full of like vigor for life because we're human and we have everything we could absolutely desire we have souls do we <laughs> and but it, yeah right but in that same manner like yorick was just like working a shit-ass job like exploited at this job his yeah. 
only thing he liked was taken away from him and he started drinking and becoming like an alcoholic like that's more human to me than what he's talking about <laughs> yeah but i i, I also I'm like yeah. that's human i like this assertion though that doubt is part of mm-hmm. it's a very self-awareness yeah, it's part of being a human. That is mm-hmm. for fucking sure. I am full of doubt. <laughs> I too am and full of gas. doubt. And gas. Doubt and gas. Yeah. God. Well. I am, I am full of gas. You're right. Uh, I'm trying to God. hold it in. So, <laughs> before this weapon, there was no other great mass weapon that people knew of. Even and though they have flamethrowers. You, even though they have flamethrowers. And... Humans follow their customs without question because their nature is weak without it, like a bear without its armor. But Yorick says that this means he stepped outside bear nature, that he's as foolish as Yofer Rackinson. And then he asks Will, why did the knife break? And Will explains honestly that he looked at Mrs. Coulter, he thought about his mom, and that shit snapped right in half. Yorick takes a note and he's like, did you know that when you talk about the knife, you talk about your parents? And he's like, Thank shit. Her. Thank you, Dr. Yorick. Thanks, Dr. Yorick. In like little glasses, right? <laughs> little notepad, little sketch pad. Hmm. hmm. What are you drawing over there, Yorick? You just like look at it and it's just like scribbles. <laughs> Yorick lifts. Uh, what do you see in the blobs? <laughs> I'm a fucking bear. <laughs> Will explains all that and Yorick's like, so wait what do you want to do with the knife? And Will hesitates because he's like, I don't, I don't know. Actually, I just know I need it. And Yorick lunges and cuffs him. And he's like, answer me truthfully. And Will says, I don't know because I haven't figured out yet what I'm supposed to do. And it scares me. And it scares Lyra too, but I I have to do Lyra's bidding. So we're going to go to the land of the dead and meet her ghost ex-boyfriend, Roger. And then he also was like, I'm a little scared about that, too, though, because the angels told me I should take the knife to Asriel, but I want to go back and take care of my mom after all this, after everything I've seen. Will explains that Balthamos, who wasn't a warrior, convinced him what the right thing to do was. He explains to Yorick why he hesitated, speaking of Balthamos and saying, He did as much as he could, and then he couldn't do any more. He wasn't the only one to be afraid. I'm afraid too, so I have to think it through. Maybe sometimes we don't do the right thing because the wrong thing looks more dangerous, and we don't want to look scared, so we go and do the wrong thing just because it's dangerous. We're more concerned with not looking scared than with judging right. It's very hard. That's why I didn't answer you. Oh, I love that. That is such a great... I love Will. Yeah. What a good boy. That's That's such a great passage of, like, humanity and doubt right it's mm-hmm. doubt it's exactly what we were just saying what york yeah. was saying i'm full of doubt and will was full of doubt and worry and it is good that will clarified though because i can see why that little hesitation of like what are you gonna do with the knife will and will's like eh. york's like i said what are you gonna do with the knife he's just afraid of saying the wrong thing man isn't that what we're all afraid of i'm always afraid of saying the wrong oh, yeah. thing or like i'm always saying the wrong thing and you know he's like my saying the wrong thing right now is kind of like, it could affect humanity, bro. Yeah, I feel that. Mine doesn't <laughs> affect humanity, but but I get it. I get yeah. It, it doesn't, my, what, me doing the wrong thing and saying the wrong thing doesn't affect humanity, but perhaps it affects, it affects you, me. listeners. Yeah. Oh, yeah, also you, <laughs> Chloe. I meant the listeners, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Your humanity. And... 
you know, as you're saying, like, I do love this scene, right? I, I, for all the reasons that you said regarding that doubt and that hesitation. Uh, I also love the scene following this with Yorick and Lyra, but I really just love this one between Will and Yorick because, yeah, Will's clarifying he doesn't want to do the wrong thing and he's just being so vulnerable about not knowing what to do. And I'm like, yeah, you're a literal child. Of course you don't know what to do. Uh, I don't as an adult. And and that he expresses that he doesn't want to just do the dangerous thing because he doesn't want to look scared. And I think that this is so great because especially in terms of Will being like, you know, a boy on the cusp of manhood. And I feel like sometimes toxic masculinity pushes young men to do the dangerous thing and place it off as right or heroic, right? They're like, it's the dangerous thing so you gotta like man up and do this but i love that will's opening up about this and and the need to really think that through and not just be rash and i feel like just this this scene in general though like where both will and yorick are sharing their insecurities with one another for example like will like yorick realizing i might have made a mistake coming south also i might have made a mistake mending the knife i just don't know where it's all gonna lead right but he is grateful (laughs) to have helped Lyra and saved her and I just like really love that these two characters are depending on one another like that and I it's really just touching to me to see them both support each other emotionally it is like a a, another father figure for Will now since he's lost his father-in-law it's the first one yeah father-in-law oh my god (laughs) father of the bride anyways he is uh, though they they stand in silence and finally Yorick says if you're gonna succeed you have to set your mother aside If you're divided, the knife will break. Then he says he must speak privately with Lyra and commands Will to keep the spies busy. Will thanks him, and they head back inside to finish mending the knife, which I have to read this. I think it's a beautiful passage. Mm -hmm. I love Pullman prose. Proseman. (laughs) He laid it among the brighter cinders until the blade was glowing, and Will and Lyra saw a hundred colors swirling in the smoky depths of the metal. And when he judged the moment was right, Yorick told Will to take it and plunge it directly into the snow drifted outside. The rosewood handle was charred and scorched, but Will wrapped his hand in several folds of a shirt and did as Yorick told him. In the hiss and flare of steam, he felt the atoms finally settle together, and he knew the knife was as keen as before, the point infinitely rare. But it did look different. It was shorter and much less elegant, and there was a dull silver surface over each of the joints. It looked ugly now. It looked like what it was, wounded. Hmm. So I have no idea if the knife is actually like really ugly or not, but I guess the text says it is, so it probably is, but I'm going to just ignore that. It sounds like a pretty cool knife still. And there's a lot of metaphors going on here, right? You talked about one earlier, Chloe, and here uh, I kind of want to think about the knife being a metaphor for like, you know, the way that Will talks about it as wounded, and of course, like his own hands being wounded. I mean, that one's pretty explicit. But as Yorick and Will's therapy session that we just tuned into pointed out, Will does associate the knife with his father and mother, and like the knife that wounded him immeasurably, just like the absence of his father, and then was also healed by him. Uh, but he still carries that wound right it's not like he was perfectly made whole again and the knife also itself was wounded by thinking of his mother and you know again not to speak too much of what will happen 
but I see the knife's breaking and reforging as it's being also kind of about heartbreak and like how we, like the knife and like Will can change and can be reforged. We might not look the same, but as Will points out, it's still just as sharp. And just as Will had to actively work through the reforging of the knife, he had to put in like mental and physical effort it wasn't easy, and I think that's kind of what heartbreak can be like too, but in the end, we can still be reforged. Yeah. It's it's such a metaphor, right? It's all a fucking metaphor. It's insane. Like, I, I think it's so beautiful just showing, like, yeah. I mean, this is quantum entanglement, dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is it. This is it. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's just, I think, really, it's a beautiful story, and that's why we're doing this series. <laughs> Forever. Nine, for nine more chapters. Nine more chapters, and then it's over. Um, Lyra speaks to Yorick, and she explains her plan. Visit the dead. See Roger's ghost again, because she's racked with guilt, and she thinks she should finish what she started and rescue him. She's hedging her bets on Will opening a window into that world. But Yorick, he doesn't like this plan. He's like, while you're alive, living is your priority. Like, your business is with life, not with the dead. But Lyra says, no, my business is keeping promises. I can't break my promise, no matter how difficult it is. And she asks what he plans to do, and he says he wants to take his people north to live in the sea. And then he says that he has to wait, because he can smell war coming. And Serafina Pecola said... She was going to meet with the Egyptian faction and choose sides soon, so it's coming for him. War's coming. Before Lyra can get too excited about Serafina and Lord Fa, Yorick interrupts and reminds her, we're not going to meet again if you don't leave the world of the dead. I don't have a ghost. <laughs> if we survive, though, he says that she's always a welcome guest at Svalbard. Will, too. Aw. Yorick tells her all about meeting Will, how Will outclevered him, and he gives her his blessing, saying, You're worthy of one another. He wishes her to go well, and Lyra gives him another bear hug. Will meets Lyra out on the path, promising the Galavespians he'll be back, but he finds her weeping, silent, Panalaemon in wolf form beside her guarding her. God, ugh, this is so sad because he, like, you know, was licking it to heal her hands and then, like, just, like, sits there with her in between his, like, bear arms, and it's so... I, like, cried rereading this scene. Oh, my God. I did. It was so sad. It was so... Because, like, besides, yeah, Yorick giving, like, Will his blessing, you know, being in the role of one of Lyra's adopted fathers slash now Will's father-in-law, he's, like, telling Lyra, you know, that they may never see each other again. And, like, because he doesn't have a ghost. And besides, like, Lyra's realization of, like, what that means, like, in in a second, um, it... And, like, how he's getting older. Like, it's just so heartbreaking, I think, for Yorick to also say that. Because, you know, this is Yorick, who we saw, like, once lost his crown and, like, his way in life. And then he's now lost his home. And he's like, what am I going to do for all my people? And now he's recently just lost his best friend. And now he has to, like, face the possibility of forever losing his adopted daughter. And I was like, no, Yorick, it's too sad. It's too sad. Yeah. And he knows, like, for what a little liar and little bullshitter she is, she's also probably one of the most pure-hearted beings that he's ever met, right? Like, out of all these corrupted humans he's had to be around, he believes in her unquestionably. Full Mm -hmm. faith, right? Blind faith in Lyra. Uh, And just like how Will has to let go of his mother, Yorick has to let go of Lyra, you know, just in case. 
just in case that's stopping her from fulfilling her destiny. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sh- she tells Will, you know, I love Yorick. But then as she says that, she realizes uh, after the fact, oh, Yorick looks old and hungry and sad. And suddenly there's this huge realization crashing down upon her that like, oh my God, we're fucking alone and growing up. And Will's like, Lyra, don't be afraid. We can do it. But if we stay here in this world, the Galavespians, they called the Gyropters for us. Like, they're going to come and get us. We have to go. And we have to make the Galavespians go with us. And that's just the saddest. Like, she realizes he's aging and she's like, oh, I have to let go too. If he has to let go, I have to let go. We have to fucking go. Oh my God. We're aging. I it's never all cried. happening. I never cried oh during the episodes. I'm crying. <sighs> Okay, we have done. nine chapters left, and you're going to cry at least six of them. So allegedly, <sighs> it's it's so sad. This is like this is the literal axis of growing up right here. Like time to grow up right now. You guys got to go. <laughs> so Panalaman turns into a tiger from his wolf form. Will and Lyra go get their rucksacks, and they confront the Galavespians, who demand they wait for the Gyropters. But Will's like, "No, we're going to another world." And the spies call him a liar, and Lyra's like, actually, I'm the one that lied to you guys. Will doesn't lie. That's my job. <laughs> That's my job security there. Please don't <laughs> intrude. Salmachia says leaving is a mistake, and Will says, well, you can come with us, or you can go back empty-handed. Yeah, so I'm like, yes, Lyra the Deceiver is back. So excited, Lyra Silvertongue. But I will say, I feel like I've kind of seen Will lie before, you know, like, he was thinking about that in regards to his interactions with Mrs. Coulter. And I mean, he's definitely like not as talented as Lyra when it comes to lying, but we can't like all be lying yeah. prodigies, all right? Oh my and god. <laughs> I will say though that I love this because the Galavespians thought like they were all saying, like, yeah, the girl is the more innocent one and she's just way more trusting. And I'm like, excuse me, Lyra has learned that she can't just trust anyone anymore. And they also, I mean, they did it, right? They made the mistake everyone made in the first book. They bought her act of innocence, which she has been using since literally day one of the whole series. <sighs> That's what happens when you don't read the first two books, Tiali's and Salmachia. Anyways. Um, oh my god. So Will, yeah, opens the window into where he had been with Baruch and Balthamos, a warm beach with fern-like trees, and he lets them through, closing <laughs> it behind them at once. And Lady Salmachia keeps watch while Lyra and Will lie down exhausted and Chevalier Tialis writes a message with his lodestone resonator. Oh my god, I would be so mad. I'd be so mad if I was like, fine, I'm gonna watch the kids sleep after they fucking tricked me (laughs) again. It is kind of like, how did we become these over-glorified babysitters? This (laughs) is bullshit. Like, that is the mood, right? Uh... That's the mood. Let's roll into the last chapter of the day. Chapter 16, Intention Craft. From the arched roof, pendant by subtle magic, many a row of starry lamps and blazing crescents fed, with naphtha and asphaltus yielded light, John Milton. So this is John Milton's description of Pandemonium, the capital of hell, a very baroque place where angels consoled themselves for losing out on heaven. Uh, There's a great artwork that I really encourage you guys to look up by John Martin. I think it's from 1824. It's a a beautiful look at Pandemonium and his take on it. But in Paradise Lost, Milton goes into what Hell's Capital looks like. 
a dungeon horrible on all sides round as one great furnace flamed, yet from those flames no light, but rather darkness visible served only to discover sights of woe. Regions of sorrow, doleful shades, where peace and rest can never dwell, hope never comes that comes to all but torture without end. Hmm. It's amazing. It's such like the perfect, this chapter, the way we get to see Asriel's kingdom and the inner workings and uh, even the forge, it, it you get that sight of hellfire, the ever-burning sulfurs. You feel the heat, the flames of the forge licking mm-hmm. you off the pages, and I love it. I love it. Absolutely. I love that John Martin's name sounds a lot like John Milton's, too. It does. It really is annoying. <laughs> I'm like, can't you guys have different names? I know, Shit. right? <laughs> but, God. yes, absolutely. It, it really captures, I feel like what Milton was going for. I mean, here's where you really get to see Pullman doing his love letter to Paradise Lost in, I think, those moments in, yeah, Azrael's Pandemonium. Well, here we are in Pandemonium. Mrs. Coulter despairs at Lyra being separated from her. She's bound to a chair, disheveled, clothing torn, and her demon thrashes on the floor in a silver chain. Lord Azrael sits nearby, scribbling on a piece of paper, taking no notice. The orderly waits for orders from Asriel, then uh, nervously glances at Mrs. Coulter while (laughs) Asriel writes, and then finally handing him the paper and dismissing him. Asriel then addresses Mrs. Coulter, saying, I don't care for Lyra, (laughs) that she should have stayed put like she was told, and that she's wasting his time and resources, and that if she refuses to be helped, let her deal with the consequences. He's like, (coughs) says... The fuss that that girl has caused is out of proportion to her merits, and that she is an ordinary, plain, English girl. But Mrs. Coulter argues, no, she's unique, she's not like other girls, and tells him not to patronize Lyra. And Azrael calls Marisa tamed and soft because of Lyra, and he's all like, your fire's been quenched from sentimental piety. And I'm just like, wow, Azrael, the biggest Sundere of them all. Like, wow, move over. Oh my god. He's mean. He calls her a doting mother because of Lyra. And he's like, you're going to have to be quiet because I'm holding an emergency conference call in this room with my chief commanders. And Asriel has spent all this time like being able to be close to Lyra, but yet holds her at a distance, right? With no interest in getting to know her. Uh, maybe it's out of fear, being too afraid to really actually let anyone get close to that vulnerability ever again in his life. But Comparing it to Marisa, who's, like, ready to claw anyone apart just to get to Lyra. Like, she gave up being a mother for her own personal ambitions, just like Asriel did. And and yes, there was the poisoning spell. We, we've talked about that for that little bit of time. But here, this is the most genuine she's been in the book. Like, this entire chapter, she has some really big actress moments, but she's also literally raw and authentic and arguing for their daughter this entire chapter. Uh, and, and for Asriel to deny that, it's also a rejection of her because, like, Lyra's brilliant. She's the product of them. Of course she's fucking smart. Like, these are two sexy, smart psychopaths, right, that have some probably some pretty intense sex. And Lyra's well-adjusted in the face of their shittiness and their abandonment of her. And she was also raised in a really great place by good people, so she got really lucky on that to have, like, absolutely nothing to do with you motherfuckers. Yeah. Uh, But of course she's smart. Of course she's brilliant. And for him to say she's not, that is, like, a personal 
like arrow being shot at Marisa. Like, no, she's not Marisa. She's not special because you're not special. That's because he's being a tsundere. All right. But like. I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was really mad, though. I remember when I was reading this again, like, before. I was like, shut the fuck up, Azrael. You don't even know her. <laughs> that's my <Yeah>. baby girl. <laughs> and that's probably how Mrs. Coulter feels, but way more. But also, she doesn't know her, so it's like, what's the truth? Yeah, that's true. What is the truth? <sighs> she's, she's uh, I think, interestingly, kind of putting Lara up on a little pedestal, too. Which is also unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Don't do that to your kids either. Well, Mrs. Coulter tries to bear her claws, telling him how bad it would look to display her tied to a chair in front of his under-officers. But he doubles down, taking a silk scarf from the drawer to silence her with. And I'm like, interesting. And she begins to beg him not to humiliate her. And he unties her, but leaves her demon in chains. There's a lot going on in this scene. Yes, there is. (laughs) He offers her a washing room to clean up in, since she looks a little worse for the wear from the Galavespian poison. And she takes her demon with her to wash up. Like, he's still, like, in chains, though. She has to carry him. But I, and I love the detail, right? That the demon, that the monkey demon does stay chained and not Marisa, because I think that really shows where... People see that the real power and fear of Marisa's is it's like her, her soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not afraid of like her. They're afraid of her. Yeah. Deeply within. Like Exactly. <laughs> they're afraid of what they've made her. Mm-hmm. Asriel's orderly returns and he announces King Agunway in his very sharp uniform and Lord Roke, who comes in on his blue hawk. And there's something cool going on with the blue hawk that Lord Roke rides. It's actually reminding me of the Egyptians, the hmm. Costa demons. The only other hawks we see in the story are Tony Costa and Ma Costa's hawks, I'm pretty sure. Hmm. So it's interesting that Lord Roke has a blue hawk, because in some aspects, he reminds me a little bit of Lord Fa as just like a Aww. harsh commander. Yeah. Yeah. So so I, I kind of, I know it's not a perfect thought but it is an interesting comparison just think of them especially in the context of being you know uh spiritual messengers crows have really good eyesight and they're really determined and they're seen as spiritual messengers and so are hawks and makes me think about them all a little bit yeah and they're kind of i mean they're not galavespians are not far as far as like you know they are different from what everyone else in the magisterium's rule as far as people and culture, right? Like they, they have just a little bit uh, a little bit in common there of being from different cultures and having to adapt to different skills that help them survive. I, I wonder if it's sort of like an archetype, right, in terms of leaders that, that Pullman seems to really enjoy. But also, as you said, there's some great parallels between, yeah, the Egyptians and the Galavespians. And while the Egyptians, I feel, are more associated with water, obviously the Galavespians more associated with air, Oh, airbenders, yeah. Oh, they kind of are, a little. Uh, very mm-hmm. different vibe, I think, in terms of their attitude than airbenders. But you think <laughs> I, I think Lyra is like the most airbendery, perhaps, of a... I mean, even the witches. I guess some of the witches, also. Anyways. That's a good one, yeah. Zephania is next. She's an angel, much higher ranking than Baruch or Balthamos, and is barely visible but for a shimmering light. Then Mrs. Coulter emerges, and the commanders bow to her. She inclines her head, sitting peacefully with the monkey. Azrael charges in, asking a gunway, What happened out there? And he recants, 
that the boy, the girl and the boy escaped, and they killed 17 Swiss guards and destroyed two zeppelins, but they also lost five men and a gyropter. And of course, despite Mrs. Coulter's courageous defense, they have brought her here! He also mentions <laughs> that he hopes Mrs. Coulter felt that she was treated courteously, and she is very clear. She's like, she's quite content with the treatment, but as though she's trying to like make a jab of like, but not from you, Azrael. <sighs> Xs. I did love that. I loved that so much. Yes, and Lord Roke is next and tells them that his spies have kept a close eye on the children. The girl was drugged to sleep for many days, and the boy lost use of his knife around that time, shattering it into pieces, but a giant bear from your world, Azriel, has fixed it, and they <laughs> entered another world! But there has been some difficulty, as turns out the Galavespians cannot compel the boy to do anything while he wields the knife, but they will at least follow him for as long as they can. And of course, now that- I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like, they they thought they had it, but yet these little obstinate children are what's in their way. And yep. now that the agents are stuck with the kids, they have no magisterium. Eye, so they have to rely on the alethiometer reader, uh, and Coulter gives what knowledge she has. She says, look, the magisterium's reader is thorough, but slow. Fra Pavel won't know the children's location for at least a couple more hours. She says that the boy with Lyra, Will, is stubborn and used to keeping secrets, but Lyra was impossible to read. She doesn't know what their plan is. And again, hysterical that she Salmahi is able to figure out kind of their whole thing and what their dynamic is a little easily. But Coulter's like, I don't know what Lyra wants. I just put her to sleep for a month. You know, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I have no clue. And I do think if Coulter had actually maybe for one moment tried to get to know her instead of forming her into a weird baby murder doll and, you know, get her to work for her, keep her drugged. If she had tried, she might actually know more about Lyra at this point. Or even if she really listened, right? Because in her sleep, Lyra was murmuring like, about Roger, and I'm like, man, if you paid attention to your daughter's best friends, you would know who Roger is, and if you knew, you would also know that your daughter's best friend was killed by your <laughs> ex slash, maybe not ex-lover, who is right here and would understand, like, maybe this is what Lyra wants. Like, the pieces are there in front of her. Yeah. And, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, uh, she's not hard to read. Like, I mean, uh, we've read a couple books of her, but she ain't hard to read. I Come love on, reading Lyra. <laughs> oh my god. King Agunway interrupts them and he's like, hey, sorry, but what the fuck is with this chick again? Sh should Mrs. Coulter even be here? And Azriel's like, you know, she might be useful as captive and guest. And Lord Roke is like, torture guy. He's like, is she going to reveal everything willingly or will I need to torture her? And Coulter laughs. She's like, I thought you'd know better than to expect truth from torture. Lord Azriel couldn't help enjoying her barefaced insincerity. Throughout the whole chapter, Azrael is just, like, punctuating it with, like, he loved watching them squirm when she lied to them, you know? And it's basically sexual kink tension between mm -hmm. Coulter and Azrael. It's basically just them admiring how much of a bad person the other one is and continually going on from there. I'm not going to kink shame, like, if that's what you're into, you know, like, do it. But that's what's happening here. I'm diagnosing it. I mean, that is that is what's happening here. And... I do find that line from her kind of funny that she's like, I thought you knew better than to expect truth from torture and him thinking she's insincere about it. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Maybe she, she thinks- tortures people. Though. Yeah. I was like, oh, 
maybe she's just decided clearly that strategy wasn't working for me, but who knows? Because, yeah. Maybe she preemptively absolved herself of that. Probably. Or she was just like, I've tried torturing people a lot and got nothing, so I'm better than that now. Now that I've tortured like a bazillion people. <laughs> Fuck. It took some practice, but <laughs> yeah. here we are. Did uh. a lot of experiments. <laughs> well. Azrael says, I guarantee her behavior and that she knows the consequences if she betrays them, but if they have doubts, express them now. And King Ogunway expresses his doubts. I doubt you, not her. Why? said Lord Hasriel. If she tempted you, you would not resist. It was right to capture her, but wrong to invite her to this council. Treat her with every courtesy, give her the greatest comfort, but place her somewhere else and stay away from her. He's not wrong, like, at all. He's not wrong. And Asriel admits, he's like, you know... I do value your input much more than hers, so I'll have her take it away. But then Coulter speaks up, and she's like, no, please, let me explain myself. And she's like, I'm the closest thing to the Magisterium you'll find. Uh, you should trust me because the Magisterium wants to kill my daughter. And I had to leave the church as soon as I heard the prophecy, because I knew. And the commanders all listen to her intently, right? Uh, she gives this performance and says, I had to set myself against the church once I had heard. She says, and specifically, the next part of her speech, she turns to Azrael to deliver and says, I've been the worst mother in the world. I let my only child be taken away from me when she was a tiny infant because I didn't care about her. I was concerned with only my advancement. I didn't think of her for years, and if I did, it was only to regret the embarrassment of her birth. But then the church began to take an interest in dust and in children, and something stirred in my heart. And I remembered I was a mother, and Lyra was my child. She continues on, saying she saved Lyra three times-ish, and claiming she's conflicted with her role as servant to the church until she heard the witch's prophecy, and now that the church knows that, she says, they'll kill her too. Mm. And that is why she declares she took Lyra to keep her safe for a third time. And King of Gunway's like, wait, was, was that the time you drugged her to sleep for like a month? No comment, no comment, no comment. Greg, you don't have to say no comment. Uh, <laughs> I am glad a Gunway interrupts and like says something because I was buying it. I was buying this Nickelodeon Teen Choice Award speech, this BAFTA winning speech, this Emmy winning speech. Uh, but there, there is something vulnerable about this, right? Mm -hmm. Like, she turns and stares at Asriel in the eye to deliver this to him. And even though this is kind of part of that back-and-forth game that they're having in this chapter, it's a lot of this is truly honest, whether Asriel pretends to understand it or not. Like, this is kind of some honesty from Marisa. Yeah, I, I do think so. And I, I don't know, like, why Asriel disbelieves so much of it, but... And, and yeah, for sure, perhaps some of it is lying and also lying to herself, like, you know, the parts about saving Lyra, but a lot of it is very true. And, you know, it's, that's what makes the lies work, right? The story is told that some of the best lies have a bit of truth in them. And here we have Marisa 
admitting her mistakes and that vulnerability, I think, serves as a great follow-up to the last chapter where Will has opened up about his own doubts and especially Yorick did. And you really get these moments of adults finally admitting that, you know, maybe they didn't always have it right. And that feels really meaningful for a coming-of-age story and for a story that's that young people are reading, right? To see that adulthood is often about making mistakes and then learning how to move forward from them. And and if you can atone, is atonement possible? That's a question for later in this book, as Yorick and Marisa are doing. Mm-hmm. Well, Mrs. Coulter justifies her actions, saying that she had to do it because Lara hated her. And I'm like, there might have been reasons for that. Anyways, her voice trembles into a sob, and she asks them to try to think of what this means to a mother, that this was the only way to keep Lyra out of harm's way, and as you said, I mean, like, ish, in terms of the saving, because <laughs> I'm like, me, wasn't all, almost all of the harm that almost befell Lyra in terms of, like, the gobblers, and then the stuff at Bolvanger because of you? you? <laughs> like, yeah, like the- that- this you, girlfriend? Yeah, I was like, this you? The ablation board? That's your project? Bulbanger, also your project? Uh, you said all of these emotions? And I'm like, why Why are your personal projects like this? Why can't you just start a podcast like the rest of us, alright? Like, that's what that's a normal person thing to do, but I guess someone didn't want to be an ordinary English girl. God. Look, the pandemic's been hard on all of us, especially Marisa. <laughs> okay, she's not ready to start her podcast yet. Oh my god. <laughs> But she should have, because it's all literally her fault. And that is, I think, I mean, like you're saying, atonement is such a big part of this chapter here and this absolution that she is looking for. She's looking Mm, to be absolved of her sins as rejecting her motherhood. Uh, And and throughout all this, she's speaking really quietly, right? She's muffling her sobs and like swallowing them into hiccups, which Asriel thinks really sells the lie. He also notices that she has started directing her words elsewhere without showing it. So Kanga Gunway, the only other human in the room, and her chief accuser, she's starting to kind of quietly address things toward him. Uh, but the gal of Espion is actually the one that's being the most moved by her, Lord Roke. He thinks that she's kind of like a scorpion. She has a powerful sting beneath her gentle tone. Better to keep scorpions where you could see them, he thought. I like this. We don't get a lot of his little POV, just kind of like etching in, but we do get this from Lord Roke. And the use of Scorpion here for Marisa, I love it. It reminds me of something from Luke 10, 17 to 20. And in this, from Luke, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I, I, it just reminded me of the scorpions in it. I was thinking about scorpions in the Bible and that specifically. Marisa being described as a scorpion is perfect because they are so dangerous, but also like soft underneath that shell. And it also kind of reminds me of the Egyptian goddess, Serkat, of fertility, magic, healing, and she is shown as wearing a scorpion in her headdress, or sometimes shown as a scorpion. Hmm. And this comes a little bit from the Deathstalker scorpion that lives in North Africa, and it has a sting that can kill. 
Pharaohs would pray to Sir Cat for her protection against poisons and death. She's certainly a purveyor of poisons and death, as we've seen, right? Let alone uh, not just poisoning Lyra, but also poisoning Carlo Boreal. Yeah, that's right. Interesting. That's a great, great connection in all these parts. And and yeah, I the scorpion thing is interesting. I don't know if I agree about scorpions with Lord Roke. Uh, and I do think it's a nice little world building thing in terms of how he views her as a scorpion because of how Lord Roke as a Galavespian might interpret things because I mean clearly the Galavespians have close relationships with dragonflies and so there's that sort of thing going on with like bugs scorpions are not insects but they are bugs and a scorpion is a much bigger threat I feel to the Galavespians than it would be to us but That's also, <laughs> uh, I think that shows that there's some respect there then. And perhaps he kind of sees a mirroring in Mrs. Coulter of his own spies who themselves also carry poison. Mm-hmm. It's like a respect thing. You're right. Yeah. He, well, and it's like what he said earlier, you know, that he's, or sorry, it's what he's going to say in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That will cover of, of like, you know, well you have a demon, doesn't that make you more powerful? You're kind of scary. Like, we had to yeah. put two people in on your ass, bitch. You're crazy. <laughs> it's You're a game-recognized game. That's, that's yeah. what's going on here. That's what Lord Crazy Roke's motherfuckers thinking. recognize <laughs> crazy motherfuckers. Yeah. So, naturally, Lord Roke supports King of Gunway, right? And King of Gunway changes his mind and decides Coulter should stay. <laughs> and Asriel finds himself outflanked, checkmate, his own trap, and he said a gunway's wishes are what he wants, and this is what a gunway wishes. Azrael is certain no one else can see the glittering triumph in her eyes. He commands her to stay quiet, and they move on to discuss a garrison being installed on the southern border and upgrading their armory from a gunway. A disposition on the angelic forces comes next from Zephania. Coulter finds herself impressed by A, their leadership, and B, what they already know about the magisterium and the defenses and leaders in the church. But she is reminded this information is going to be out of date very soon, since they don't have a spy in the magisterium. An idea strikes her, and she exchanges a glance with her demon, which, of course, feels like a spark is being ignited, but they say nothing. Azrael and a gunway head to go look at the intention craft in the armory, and Coulter hangs back on the way down to speak to Zephania as they follow them. She's impressed with the angel, not unlike Ruta Scotty was when she met angels on the way to Azrael's. Coulter asks if she's one of the angels from the Great Rebellion, and Zephania says she is, and now she's pledged to Azrael to end tyranny at last. Coulter asks, what happens if you fail? And Zephania says, basically, everything will be destroyed and cruelty will reign forever. NBD. NBD. <laughs> I do love this scene between Maurice and Zephania, and that I guess, except for that like brief moment, where she's like, yeah, I'll be destruction and cruelty forever. Uh, nothing in this conversation is really that mind-blowing, I think. Like, the reveal about the cosmology uh, in regards to the authority comes from King of Gunway, so it's just like us watching Mrs. Coulter chat up Zephania and like make small talk and I feel like it's implied that they keep talking after this and I feel like their conversation is kind of the equivalent of like the weather's pretty interesting huh <laughs> like it's not it's not like that that big of a reveal in this convo I'm like this is so awkward it's an awkward conversation but Mrs. Coulter's like I really want to talk to her 
Well, and that's what's so crazy is like for Coulter, she's like, oh, so interesting. You're going to fight God. Cool. Yeah. Uh, just because I think she's also, she, and we're about to see it. She's in shell shock, right? Like religious shell shock that she's just like, oh, so you all are serious. Like you do want to kill the authority. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. I never thought of it that way, Coulter says, you know. She's it's kind very, of a crazy like, thought. <laughs> yeah. For her, she's so indoctrinated. Not just in, you know, religious-wise, like, she probably doesn't even believe any tenets of the religion, but it's like a cult from just being involved in the powerful roles there. Having yeah. power, I mean, that's the the crazy part. So for her, she's breaking from that cult mentality of following what the magisterium and the church want for the very first time, and it's almost kind of like a naughty chapter for her. She's just, like, giggling all the time around corners, like, oh, that's so funny, that's so quaint of you guys interesting interesting yeah it does kind of make her seem even more unhinged now that you say it like that that she's just giggling <laughs> around corners like oh funny that's so funny you want to attack her. a dethroned god ha. <laughs> who just does that what a what a quirky thing what a quirky thing to do she says right like uh, and reg in regards to the answer of oh yeah destruction and cruelty is like gonna reign forever she she laughs nervously like ha what the fuck that's kind of funny and then she watches Lord Roke fly past them. Then she ends up walking next to Gunway next and asks him to excuse her ignorance, but she had never heard of the man on the Blue Hawk and his people, like, until yesterday. And she's like, so what do you know about them? Uh, you know, and she apologizes and she's like, I'm asking you because I don't, like, want to offend them. And... Yeah, so so King of Gunway tells her, you know, the Galavespians are proud. They have a developed world that consists of humans and Galavespians. And the humans there are the servants of the authority and have been trying to kill the Galavespians off since forever ago. But the Galavespians are fierce warriors, deadly enemies, and valuable spies. Some of the Galavespians sided with the enemy, but most had been allied with Azrael. The Marisa asks... What about the angels? And King of Gunway interrupts and says, You know, these are exactly the kind of questions that a spy would ask. And she reminds him, But oh, I'm just a captive. I'm so harmless now. And so King of Gunway's like, All right, cool. Just making sure. And then spills the rest. Like, Oh yeah, angels are really difficult to understand. Some are mean, some are kind, some powerful, some not. They have weird alliances and ancient feuds. And also this authority has like suppressed them since the beginning. And I will say in terms of the intentions being a big part of what's being pressed throughout these chapters, I like that the term King of Gunway uses in regarding the Gal of Bespin's world, he says there are two types of conscious beings, right? He emphasizes and he uses the term beings a lot and, mm -hmm. you know, then talks about when the authority came into being in just a few moments, right? And I, I think that really helps to further the argument that consciousness requires intention and that existence mm -hmm. in in this world, or as, as the story frames it, it's not a state, it's a verb, it's something that has to be done, that has to con consistently, like, you have to be doing it to be. That's interesting, and I believe coming right after this, don't we get a Mary Malone chapter? Yes. And I make this up. So it goes right into Mary Malone with the Mulefa after mm. this. And I think that's really well done to kind of show that in Oil and Lacquer in Chapter 17. No spoilers, but we go to Mary Malone. Uh, so connecting it here to mm -hmm. A, maybe a resin, as you mentioned, but mm. also B, collecting it here with like the consciousness that they obviously have. And Mary Malone has definitely already identified that about them. 
Yeah. Uh, that, that's a really good point. Really good point. Especially with Yorick acting as if he's also gaining consciousness. Yeah. Yorick being like, am I peoples now? <laughs> I'm people now. And this is, of course, where that religious shell shot comes in that we were just talking about. Because the way a gunway says come into being, she's like, what do you mean? Come into being. The authority created the worlds, didn't he? And a gunway's like, oh, you got to sit down for this. Listen, <laughs> this shocks some of us, but this is angelic knowledge. The authority is not the same as the creator. They don't even know if there is a creator. They just know at some point the authority took over and took charge and the angels and humans rebelled. But this is going to be the last rebellion. Never have angels and humans made common cause. I love this. There's something in uh, there's something in mythos for Christian mythos and in, in Judaism too about angels making the earth versus God making the earth, hmm. and this is very much so commentary going on here. Pullman knew what he's doing, as we know, and there's this whole thing that God's the creator, end all, be all, case closed, no questions, right? Uh, in some other tellings of the mythos. God made angels that did his bidding and helped create the earth. So it wasn't just him. Or uh, one of my favorites, he made three craftsmen that each had a tiny bit of his soul in them. And that helped create the earth, the waters above and below. And then they joined together and they become mankind because of that. So kind of an embellishment of the Genesis creation myth. But no matter in these mythos, it all boils down to the power that's coming from him the guy that owns the dark materials, the his, uh, no matter what God's power is, the main thing is that in book, the argument always comes up that it was him that did it. No matter, even if he made mm -hmm. angels, he may have the power to make the angels. Uh, and, and it's because in these secondary mythos, Christians don't usually believe because it's seen as kind of slighting his power, right? If he had to have help to make things, then maybe he's not all powerful question mark. Uh, and thus that decreases the blind faith people have in him and belief that they have in him, the humanity that does follow him. So putting that into context here, God is selfish, man. Like God's like, no, I did it. No one helped me. And I wouldn't tell you even if they fucking did. And that's where here a gunway's like, hey, it turns out that's a lie too, dude. Yeah. And it God's is- God's a liar. <laughs> it is blowing her mind, right? That- the authority would do all that. And and I mean, like, that's her worldview. Yeah. And what she's, like, lived her whole life for. And she's like, hmm, interesting. So that's all a lie. <laughs> yeah. Because she asks, she's like, uh, what does Asriel intend here? Like, what do you mean? What, wait a second. What is this? And he says, we're not colonialists, Mrs. Coulter. We haven't come to conquer, but to build. And she asks, is he going to attack the kingdom of heaven? A gunway looks at her and says, we aren't going to invade it, but if it invades us, they'd better be ready for war because we're prepared. Yes. We're going to get to the preparations in a second, but I do appreciate this clarification and the use of the word colonialist from King of Gunway, which I think feels really pointed. Uh, he's pointing out that the place that they are right now and setting up essentially pandemonium was uninhabited. And I think this is pretty important when you look at the history of Britain. And and also yes. how the Magisterium 
very much plays allegory to all of that in, in this world. But I do want to say of Asriel's supposed innocence, right, in terms of colonialism, like, did anyone, like, tell Lord Asriel about all this, like, philosophy before he went and fucked up Chittagatse? Just, just a thought. Just a thought. <laughs> Yeah, well, and that's where it's like... No real person that, involves. <laughs> oh, my God. That's where there's that little bit of Lucifer in Asriel that you see, like... Mm, yeah. It's not all for the people. Yeah, it's not. It's not. Some of this is for his ego, too. It's a dangerous <laughs> thing, right? Is the dangerous thing really, like, the best thing? I don't know. <laughs> As Will points out. But a gunway does feel confident in joining Azrael. He says it's his proudest task to set up a world where there are no kingdoms, no kings, no bishops, no priests. They intend to be free citizens of the Republic of Heaven. And Azrael as Lucifer, yes, is very much coming to frame here. There's also such a great mirror in these chapters between Lyra and Will and Yorick with their own original sin paths. But Lucifer's rebellion is also kind of depicted as a, an original sin in a way, right? Because it's the first and final cause of all evil. And there's almost something interesting in like recontextualizing Coulter as Eve instead of Lyra mm. here, and Azrael as Lucifer, uh, tempting her, right? Come over to our side, Marisa. Come on over. Come bite the apple and join us with Coulter being tempted by Lucifer, by Azrael. There, there definitely is something there with... I feel like they've always kind of been like that, right? It, Mrs. Coulter also kind of inhabiting that. It's very strange. I mean, them on the mountaintop in Northern yeah. Lights, you know, swooning for each other in the snow. Uh, yeah. Toxic love, but we love to see it. Yeah. And the weird, you know, the the tiger and the monkey. Mm, yep. Well, King of Gunway departs from her. He's like... You know, letting her simmer with all of these bombs for a moment. Moves on to his commander. Uh, and she eventually catches up with them. They move quickly to the Great Hall, and Mrs. Coulter notices a bracket on every pillar, presumably to give Lord Roke's hawk somewhere to rest, so that he can be included in the discussion. And then they make their way to a small closed carriage, drawn by an unbaric locomotive. The engineer bows, and his brown monkey demon cowers from the chained golden monkey. I thought this was interesting because it's not really specified more than that the, the brown monkey is hiding behind its partner, its human's legs. Mm -hmm. But, and it could just be fear at seeing a chained demon, but also like that it's a brown monkey and the golden monkey. It, it feels like, you know, seeing a demon not dissimilar to you whatsoever in mm. chains, especially with all of this talk of like, the Galavespians have consciousness and the, the Mulefa in the next chapter, you know, like, and that demons can speak to one another and actually kind of cohesively get a better understanding of pretty much everything just by whispering to each other within one minute, right? Something deeper going on than just hiding from the scary other monkey. This monkey is watching a fellow monkey demon go by in chains. They're distressed. Mm. I wonder, yeah, the engineer, I wonder if it's like an expression of empathy, right? For someone, seeing someone captive. And mm -hmm. especially because the engineer doesn't really know what's up with Mrs. Coulter. He's just like, wow, I feel bad for that lady. <laughs> I feel bad for the pretty lady. He yeah. doesn't know. She's a child murderer. Oh my God. 
I thought we liked murderers. What's the truth? I don't know. I have doubts. <laughs> <laughs> they enter the carriage, and the carriage is lit by some crystals. It's very neat. We'll see it again mm. in the chapter. Secret tunnel. Uh, the train glides down into the tunnel, taking them to the armory. As they descend, Coulter realizes she hasn't talked to Lord Roke yet, so she takes this time to do so. And she asks, are your spies always sent in pairs? Because they, they came out and put me in a stalemate immediately. She mentions she was intrigued by their skill, and Roke takes that as a slight to his pride. And she's like, no, no, I, I just mean, I thought I could beat you very easily, but you very much so almost beat me. He mentions she and her demon are a pair too, and gives a kind of a haughty stare to her, asking, well, did you expect us to concede the advantage? She looks down and she's kind of humbled and she's like, all right, I'm just not going to talk anymore on this train. Oh, I thought that was a power move because he was like looking, expecting for an answer from her. And she's just like, I'm leaving the conversation now. <laughs> oh, I thought she just didn't have anything left to kind of add. She's like, oh, OK, this is weird. Yeah. And but in, in general, though, I do love that Lord Roke doesn't give Marisa a straight answer of like, oh, we always work in pairs. Right, but he just turns it around and gives her an answer regarding the demons because if he lets her believe that the Gelavespians always work in pairs, it makes it a little easier for him to sneak into the intention craft later on. Yes, that's true. That's true. She totally doesn't even realize it. Yeah. Not yet. He gave a semi non answer. They finally reach a platform, and Asriel opens the carriage doors, and Mrs. Coulter gasps at the heat as they exit. It's a sulfur-laden place, and the air is ringing with mighty hammers and iron on stone, and the noise doubles, and the heat breaks over them as they lead off the platform, and only Zephania seems unaffected, which, whatever, seems unfair, but since it is sulfur-laden... I will say that the whole place probably smells like rotten eggs and farts and like besides like all the machinery, like I think I too would gasp at like how bad it smells and maybe also gag. This is my yeah, theory. But you'd be distracted because it's so epic. Like it is like a total epic proportions thing because Maurice is looking around with curiosity and there are hammers the size of houses raining down mm -hmm. right like huge a river of sulfurous molten metal is flowing it's cut off by an adamant gate and it settles over rows of molds to cool heat pound cool over and over this right next to the forge in the last chapter is great right because yorick's forge is bare and man-made and it's low budget full of nothing but hard work and intention with yorick's armor part of his armor and soul in the anvil and just reforming the knife, as you spoke about so well for us in full. But here, instead of Yorick roaring, the machines are roaring. I mean, the anvils here are the biggest shit in the world. They're biggest houses. It's an enormous forge full of industrial warfare being created, right? A rebellion being crafted, doom being crafted. And where Yorick and Will and Lyra forged hope in that knife together, right? Like, what they forged was hope and sacrificing the old and in with the new uh, here, this is just industrial warfare against God. Yeah, it's almost replicating the same systems, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's an aspect of hope to it, too, for all of them. But it's just not as beautiful as Yorick and Bill and Lyra. So, <laughs> I don't fuck them. I, I mean, it's impressive, just not as impressive as our heroes. 
Right. It's impossible to hear over the din, and so no one even tries. They are gestured towards a walkway by Azriel, passing over it to a rocky corridor, and stalactites gleam in strange colors, and crystals are scattered loosely on the floor for light. The air cools, and they leave the mountain into the night. Outside, men haul out the... Intention craft! It looks like a massive cabin slash drilling apparatus, a glass canopy over a seat with dozens of levers and handles sprouting in front of it. Six legs are attached at different angles, and the body is made of pipework, cylinders, pistons, coiled cables. Most of it is hidden in gloom, making it hard to discern what was part of its structure and what wasn't. Azriel and Zephania speak closely with the engineers, and Mrs. Coulter tries to memorize every part of the craft, watching Asriel jump into the seat and harness himself and his demon in. And it's the fact that this is called the intention craft. Maybe it's a little <laughs> on the nose, but I also do like, again, the way that it ties into the previous few chapters regarding weapons and their intentions, and this idea that, oh, you can't really tell what's part of it or not, making it you know, a little bit about, like, it's difficult to glean what others' intentions are, but because it is a machine that is made by a machine, and you can mostly see it, it's purely dependent on the person's intentions, and requires a demon, it's a little, I think, less like the knife, which kind of gets that Mm -hmm. mystical aspect by having its own intentions, whereas this is not that. Uh, I also like that it has six legs, and makes me think of insects because I think it kind of creates a nice connection with the Galavespians and the dragonflies that they ride and share intentions with as well. Mm. It also caught my eye that Coulter is studying it so intently. Uh, and that last chapter, yes, intently. And the last chapter you brought up Will and his sharp eye, right? How mm. he is very fast to to get things. And she has that same kind of mind. That is why there's a little bit of that tension with those two there when they met, because they have similar minds. You know, mm. they're distrusting, they are very smart, and they catch on to things quickly. Great point. Great point. The craft moves, and Coulter's not really sure how. She watches parts of it revolve in the air. Azrael moves levers and dials until it hovers, high as a tree, turning. No sound, no gravity pulls it down. Ogunway tells her to listen to the south. So she does, and he says, Watch, we have decoys flying a mission to tempt our enemy to follow. The enemy does that. Six gyropters fly past, and a raiding party follows. Just as the enemy is about to get one of their wounded ships, a crack explodes in mid-air from the intention craft, and battle occurs quickly, difficult to make out. Silence comes, and the gyropters disappear round the mountain, and the intention craft hovers, shimmering as it comes slowly to the ground. King of Gunway and other commanders hurry forward while Coulter and her demon discuss it. Why is he showing it to us? Her demon said quietly. Surely he can't have read our mind, she replied in the same tone. Oh, wow, Coulter's hmm. demon talked. Yeah, Coulter's demon. I, I didn't like catch that in, like until you pointed it out, and I thought, that is really interesting. Also, he, only, he does talk another time in this book, I think, but it's very rare. It is very rare, but it it's interesting that he does. And mm-hmm. obviously I think and I think it's a good creative choice that the choice that the show both times doesn't have the monkey demon speak. It doesn't feel it's out of character. It does feel out of character. It works here. I it works, you know, with the power of my imagination. Right. Um which can do a lot, you know, the power of your imagination is part of how Will is oh like, God. Yeah, I'm gonna 
make the knife come back together, but... Oh my god. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, so, I mean, like, literally, that's what it says. Uh, but yeah, so, I anyway, in here, I will say, interesting that you would think that uh, Azrael kind of did read your mind, that maybe you were just really obvious. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and they were, they, they had that spark, and what they had thought of in the Advent Tower was telling Azrael they're going to propose going to the CCD, spying for him, and manipulating them, just like he manipulated the craft. But now, after seeing the flying machine, there's a new idea on the rise. <laughs> she gets over there, and she's like, Asriel, won't you tell me how your new toy works? And Asriel's like, I would love to, Marisa. <laughs> Which I have to say, is this specific rim, Eliana? Uh, I mean, she did bring up earlier, like, why do things have to happen in pairs? So it, it's possible. Not really it's canon. Out. It's canon. Asriel tells her, if you intend it to go forward, it will go forward. She pushes harder, and he's like, fine, I'll tell you. And he shows her a cable with a leather grip marked by Stelmaria's teeth. Your demon must hold the handle, and the pilot must wear the helmet. Ugh, kind of like the boxes that he puts Roger and his demon oh. in. You know, yeah, it, it's similar. The current flows between them and reads your intentions. Only a human with a demon can fly it. Marisa says, I see. Okay, but things that I haven't seen yet, but cannot wait for cinematic adaptation. I want to see Stelmaria grasp the little handle with her like little big cat jaws. I think that's what I'm most looking forward to. Like, just imagine it. Series three. (laughs) Yeah, right? Like her like just opening the just grasping the handle amazing i hope we see it i do i I can't wait to see how they do the intention craft actually yeah maybe they'll just give them like little i don't know helmets or something which is not as fun (laughs) adorable though adorable (laughs) well as marisa's being shown the intention craft and says i see she then shows asriel out of the out of it and then steals this ship Asriel stops the gunway from going after her and orders Lord Rogue, go with her, and then watches the intention craft go up, up, up and away pretty quickly. And Asriel admits, like, yeah, I probably should have listened to you, King of Gunway. Uh, that Coulter, Lyra's mother, uh, I should have expected this sort of behavior. But at least Azriel knows where she's going. She's flying to the CCD to give them the intention craft and then also to spy for Azriel. So, like, things are going okay. All right. And then a gunway asks <laughs> when Lord Roke will reveal his presence. And Azriel laughs and says, You know, I think that we'll keep that one a surprise. And so they both, like, head back to the workshop, laughing heartily, gonna go throw back some beers as they go look <laughs> at a more advanced model of the intention craft awaiting them. God damn it. It's such a such a classic. Like the entire dynamic between Azriel and Marisa is amazing in these chapters. Seeing how they act together and respond to one another and how they're totally each other's Achilles heel, right? Uh it's like the Mr. and Mrs. Smith kind of story, the ah no, I gotcha now, you have to try to kill me. They're just constantly <laughs> gotcha-ing each other and shooting finger guns, and it's like a very on-brand, very sexy, very rad. I really like it. Good for them. Good for y'all. Good for them. Yeah. They were just, like, fucking in front of everyone, basically. Yeah. I mean, King of Gunway basically was saying, like, you've been eye-fucking her for an hour, dude. We've gotten nothing done. Yeah. Pretty much. 
And uh, I think it's uh, maybe that's why everyone didn't want her there. They're like, this is really awkward for us. She's right, a we witch. Did, we did, well, they're like, we didn't consent to be part of this. As oh my god. <laughs> part you of this quadruple, quadruple, quintuple. Yeah. Yeah. It's inappropriate at uh. best. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, things don't get much happier after this. So. They get yeah. tense, very intense. We're going to have lots of intense moments in the next couple months. Yeah, we are. We are going to have a lot of intense moments. <sighs> yeah, I'm I'm already like sad just thinking about it and I was like, wow, if I already cried this episode, I don't usually do that. What's going to happen to me? Anyway. Buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway um but like speaking about the next few months that brings us to the end of this episode and to our discussion and i'm sorry everyone i did a bad job this episode but it's fine yeah you really sucked you were really bad this episode i feel like you didn't really reveal anything though i feel like i skirted Mm. the line well this brings us to the end of our episode and into our discussion as you said and This is the time, if you have not finished The Amber Spyglass, if you have not read novellas or the books of dust, uh, log off, take a breather, go hang out, sip some tea, come back next month, and we'll talk to you then. That said, if you're here and you're ready to get dusty, dive in with us and let's talk about some dusty things happening at the end of the series and outside the series. The, the first thing I want to point out, I do have a couple Amber Spyglass things I want to point out today. Mm-hmm. I loved Will. There's this line in this chapter where Lyra thought that Will would have a demon that took the form of a tigress. Hmm. Great foreshadowing. Because it's a cat. Like you said, big cat, but not big cat. So it's, a small little, cat. it's a medium cat, kind of. like A, a medium cat. A little or a medium cat, more just a medium cat. A little big cat. I don't know. A decent size a decent sized cat yeah but i love that foreshadowing i love will's demon foreshadowing and more will foreshadowing okay can we talk about quantum entanglement now that we have our spoiler what the fuck quantum Uh entanglement is literally just them eliana it's just them it's them it's also it's also being separated from their demons and it's also being separated from each other through worlds and the demons and uh hold on let me just let's just go back though in our world there's a way of taking a common lodestone and entangling all its particles and then splitting it in two so that both parts resonate together the counterpart to do this is with lord roke our commander when i play on this one with my bow the other one reproduces the sounds exactly and so we communicate I'm just saying that that's really oddly specific for two people that are mm-hmm. separated between worlds and can never get back together again. That, because, you know, they would die. And I think it's kind of super asshole-ish that they didn't give them one. Well, <laughs> so they could just text. I mean, teenagers love to text. I mean, the books are still young. Right? The books are still young. There's one yeah. more. They could still get a lodestone resonator. Get a lodestone of this guy. You know? Get a lodestone of this guy. <laughs> Hired. Well, and, and thank you. Thank you. And, and on top of that, though, like, you have the idea of how Lyra doesn't know her mom was poisoning her, right? Mm-hmm. 
And like, yet she still loves her mom in a fucked up toxic way. But then you have the opposite, the end of the series and that like, Will and Lyra staying in each other's worlds would be dying slowly of like world poison, right? Even though it's also love. Yeah. So so there's just all this like foreshadowing and feelings going on about distance and quantum entanglement and having your uh soul ripped from you. Yeah. <sighs> I just it's And and they learn to hard. give one another up, right? To Yes. For each other's best benefit so they can live a full life. And I think that's a and that this ends up being a more healthy form of love versus Marisa learning that lesson, I guess, at the end of her life, right? And I think it's a, I, that's a great connection that you've drawn between the way Marisa showed her love for Lyra versus non-toxic forms and needing to let go because Marisa couldn't understand, like, you need to let her go. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly Until what they had to do. That's yeah. what Will had to do, right? Letting go his mom. Uh, so that's hard because that's also what has to happen here. And uh, Marisa has to let Lyra go. Yeah. And he does. She kind of does, but not really. I mean, she dies. She doesn't, she doesn't. Yeah. I mean, she does by jumping, you know, like that's yeah. letting her go. And, and by not putting that on her, like not, you know, Lyra will always wonder what happened, but like, she didn't say, mommy's going to sacrifice herself now, sweetie. Like, she just did it. And, yeah. and that kind of sacrifice is what love is, right? Like, the compromises you make to yourself to ensure the safety of your loved ones. And, yeah, I, I don't know. That's going to be sad. You're right. Fuck off, Eliana. <laughs> We're going to cry so much more. <laughs> God. And, you know, speaking of Marisa and the end of the book... A lot of this chapter, I think, is giving us, like, the elements to set up her actions at that point. Like, in regards to, like, I mean, showing us the intention craft that she's going to use to find Metatron. But also, I mean, it, it literally shows us Marisa's intentions through that monologue, right? Like, yeah. And, and also, I mean, she says she saved Lyra three times. And again, many of those were her fault. But really, I think only two of those times count, in my opinion, which is in terms of maybe the gobbler's and ablation board, and then also saving her from being severed. I don't think this, the third one counts. Uh, you made that up. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I, she will, though, save Lyra three times, right? When you consider, like, the lodestone bomb, maybe even yeah. four when we talk about, again, like this part with Metatron. Yes. Oh, and that is the other thing, right? Like, quantum entanglement. The whole time I was thinking, oh, this is literally the bomb. The bomb, the bomb is quantum entanglement. Yeah. The bomb. Yeah, it is. It, well, the, yeah, the bomb is hair, quantum yeah. entanglement. The atoms, yeah. the actual atoms being joined, and like, and once you join her atoms with her hair, those similar atoms, then bloop. Yeah. So that that's really this chapter is really heavy and thick for those. Yeah. That's really great. These three. Mm-hmm. God, and <sighs> you know, I, there is something religious about that three times, right? Uh, mm. You were saying that. Earlier on, you had the reference to Mary Magdalene a little bit in the beginning of how, you know, Will washing Lyra's feet, basically. And there's even some kind of, like, martyrdom coming from Coulter throughout this end here, as she's obviously having these revelations. She's the sinner martyr of the story, right? Like, yeah. complex. Did she atone? No, not truly, but kind of. Slash, you know, like, it's very complex. And... She was devoted by the end to baby Lyra Jesus, even if it wasn't in the healthiest manner, and even if 
she didn't do things 100% right all the time. Like, she was still devoted by the end as a disciple. Uh, and I think that counts for a lot. And I think something about what we're seeing now, like, it's like you said, Azrael is so against it. And he's like, oh, the shit she's saying is bullshit. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. It's derivative. But I actually think this is some of the very first times she's ever been honest in the story. I agree. I agree. I. It's funny, like, he can see some of her intentions, but he can't really see, I guess, all of it. And I don't know if we're supposed to be reading it as, like, Asriel has just such had such a terrible time with his ex-girlfriend that he, like, can't believe that she could truly care about their daughter <laughs> in that way. And... Yeah. Or if it's just like, I, I'm not sure I really completely get it. And uh, yeah, obviously some of it is like her lying to herself and putting on a show, but a lot of it feels very true to what we see. And and even if it's not yet at the time, it becomes true by the end. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Speaking of things at the end, <laughs> and, and also weapons, uh, we have that moment where like the knife is very confusingly described to Lyra and one of the lines there I thought was fun was like that the knife would be the death of dust but only the way to keep dust alive and obviously that would be very confusing for like anyone I'd be I think like if I didn't understand I'd be like what the fuck and I, I just like that the knife is portrayed as a contradiction in and of itself and I think that we have that a lot in these characters in the story I mean obviously like Mrs. Coulter's one. There's a there's another one you brought up at this episode at the beginning of this episode of like these ideas of contradictions and also Lyra herself, right? She's also a bit of a contradiction and seen to some extent as being maybe a weapon against the authority. Um, you know, Lyra, she's described as being Eve, the mother, but so much of her story isn't about her being the mother, it's about being a daughter and the way her parents have completely failed her. And there, the knife just, like, has a lot going on, obviously, in these chapters, right? Like, the knife and its intentions are about protection for dust, but also destruction, and it protects through destruction. And I think that's probably ultimately part of why it has to be destroyed. I wonder if, like, in the knife's intentions of its of destruction, maybe destroying its own self might be part of that, right? Because it's also dependent on Will's intentions, as they talk about. And I think they, mm -hmm. they have this aspect of, like, Will... I think you know, that question of maybe the dangerous choice isn't the good choice, I guess that mm -hmm. speaks back to what you were talking about also, right? Like how they choose not to stay together. Because I think that, mm -hmm. that is pretty, very definitively dangerous, dying within yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Um, You're 100% right. And, and that's like, you could choose that. That's the passionate choice, but it's not the safe choice and it's not the healthy choice. And it's, it's not, not the right choice. It's not the right choice. No. It's not the choice that savors and values life. Yeah, it's not. And and that therefore is very counter to like what the story is about. And, mm -hmm. you know, in the context of the knife being about heartbreak and reforging, I, I mean, like, that's where it doesn't work. It kind of falls apart in many ways. Uh, not, I mean the metaphor, though, but like the real sad hours thinking about how it breaks as... You know, Will thinks of Lyra, and, like, here is setting the stage for all of that. But I think there's a little hint, right? Not just with the Lodestone Resonator, but of how maybe they can 
reach each other again because if Will, if your own like intentions, right, and and the role that he plays in reforging the knife can be so powerful. Like again, it literally says like he sent his imagination to the tip of the knife, right, in order to reforge it. Mm-hmm. We're told at the end that perhaps through the power of imagination, Lyra and Will can see each other again. I feel like we're getting some like some of the little clues in there, but. Then again, oh, who now knows? she feels like it. Oh, now she feels like there's hints. I mean, I'm just like, at the same time, I'm like, how much of it is? Because at the same time, I'm like, when did Pullman come up with this stuff? Because it took him like a bazillion years to give us like what he fucking gave us in the secret commonwealth. And I'm like, I still hate it, even though I haven't finished it. Oh, no. and I'm like, I hate it. <laughs> Why is this what I got? Why is this what the imagination gave me? <laughs> well, to close out with a couple books of dust. You know, speaking of speaking of our favorite books by Philip Pullman that made us so happy. There's two things that I thought of in this episode. The first thing is the Galavaspians eating the human food kind of reminds me of La Belle Sauvage when they huh. eat the fairy food. Ah, oh, yes. Yes. So it's kind of funny that they become more humanized in the eyes of our protagonists as we move along after eating their food. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, the same food. And that's kind of, uh, we see the reverse of that, because you were talking about how Mary's chapters come after this one. The Mm -hmm. reverse of that when, I mean, the... Oh, the oil gods. Yeah, well, one of the first things the Malefa do, right? They're like, here, Mary, eat eat some of our food. And they're like, let me squirt from my trunk into your mouth. And I'm like, this is is a lot and very intimate and very fast on, like, this this meal. In a post-COVID society? No, I'm just kidding. Right? Uh, <laughs> the other thing that I had to I have to put this out there because I'm very upset I can't believe Pullman would write such slander because then he went and wrote La Belle Sauvage Pullman's up there like Mrs. Lonsdale didn't hug me ever Mrs. Lonsdale never cuddled me ever you ungrateful beast <laughs> Mrs. Lonsdale did everything for you yeah. she like held you through a flood, through a storm. She made sure you were safe and she cleaned all your butt all the time because yeah. Malcolm wasn't doing that. Malcolm sure wasn't cleaning your ass. So I'd like some respect on Mrs. Lonsdale's name. Put some respect on Alice Lonsdale. She endured a lot. for, And I guess Lyra doesn't remember those parts because she's a baby, but at least I think that does mm-hmm. get a little corrected. That is that is a good thing in the Secret Commonwealth slightly. The Mrs. Lonsdale gets more respect in terms of her emotional role in Lyra's life. Yep, and then she gets sent to jail for it, so. Yeah. Anyways, um, but those, you are, know, those are the books of dust things. Kids are fucking ungrateful, right? Especially preteen, pre-teen girls. Preteen Especially kids in Lyra. general. I was fucking ungrateful. I'm still ungrateful. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm just calling Lyra a lie. Or, uh, you know, she is telling lies. Telling motherfucking lies. Your only parent isn't. The bear isn't your only parent, okay? God. Yes, Malcolm and Alice are your other. Wait a second. So, that being said, thanks so much for tuning in this month to His Dark Materials, The Amber Spyglass. Our 20th His Dark Materials episode. Wow. We've got nine chapters left in the book. So next next month, we'll be back with two to three chapters. We'll see what we do. We'll see where we get. 
And this train is, uh, it, it's heading down, heading to the underworld. Yeah. Which is wild. That is wild that they, they cover so much in those last nine chapters. Holy shit. A lot happens. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will be frank with everyone at home listening still, we probably will, uh, go down to two chapters as we get to the last couple they're packed. Episodes, I think they're packed. They're packed, and I I want to do them right. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have like begrudged them being like even like more chapters, you know. But yeah, it's actually surprising how it how fast it ends. In my opinion, but it is that, a criticism many have of these of this book specifically. It does feel like a roller coaster, like that, yeah. and then you're like all of a sudden, oh wow, my stomach fell out of my butthole. How did that happen? I don't mind it all, like, being there, and, and I didn't really mind it on a reread, but I know that, like, it is a criticism many have. Well, I didn't mind it, but maybe this time we can watch it. We'll notice And I think it. it's got, yeah. it's got merit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I minded mm-hmm. when I was 13. Anyway. Um, now we're at chapters 14 and 16, not 13. And, yes, yeah, so thanks everyone for tuning in, and if, you know, you want more His Dark Materials... This month's Patreon episode is going to be His Dark Materials. Yeah, check that out. Patreon.com slash GirlsGoneCanon. And make sure you're subscribed to us on a podcast platform near you. If it's not through your patron RSS feed, you can check us out at Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Acast. You name it, we're on it. Yeah. And of course, if you have thoughts about this episode or anything else... Please feel free to send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com, or you can shoot us a tweet at Twitter, where we are still at girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N. Yeah, send us pictures of your demons, you know? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> people, a lot, a lot of people so send much. us pictures of their animals, and it brings us great joy. Like, for example, someone yes. showed us again, Blueberry the bird. Blueberry return. That was, Blueberry I think, our friend Robin. Return. Yes. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next month. I've been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Bye, guys.